You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. This is a non-smoking theater, so please, no smoking. For the enjoyment of others, please refrain from conversation during the feature presentation. At this time, please turn off all cell phones and pagers. And remember, no one has the right to touch you in your bathing suit area. People pay good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. As hard as you can. Why? How much can you know about yourself if you've never been in a fight? Wait, let me start earlier. Like many of you, I was stuck. You want me to deprioritize my current reports yeah. until you advise of a status upgrade? Make these your primary action items. I couldn't sleep. No, you can't die from insomnia. I'd flip through catalogs and wonder, what kind of dining set defines me as a person? This is your life, and it's ending one minute at a time. I prayed for a different life. Soap. I make and I sell soap. This is how I met Tyler Durden. Come on, hit me before I lose my nerve. Ow! They hit me in the ear! It was on the tip of everyone's tongue. Can I be next? We just gave it a name. Gentlemen, welcome to Fight Club. First rule of Fight Club is... Wow, nice. You do not talk about Fight Club. Is that your blood? Some of it, yeah. After Fight Club, we all started seeing things differently. You're gonna have to keep me up all night. And she ruined everything. You're not into her, are you? No. God, not at all. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. But we won't. We had a plan. <laughs> to what purpose? In Tyler, we trusted. I gotta take Fight Club up and on. Each one of you has a homework assignment. You're gonna start a fight with a total stranger. That's not necessary. You're gonna lose. That hurt. You were looking for a way to change your life. You got it. I'm stopping this. It's already done, so shut up. What kind of sick game are you playing? Oh my god. In the end, you will thank me. Whoa! Whoa! 
fight anyone, who would you fight? Shatner. I'd fight William Shatner. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Ms. Maitland McDonough. Always a pleasure. Also back in the booth is Mr. Rob St. Mary. I know this because Tyler knows this. This week, we are looking at the 1999 film from director David Fincher, Fight Club, based on the book by Chuck Palahniuk. The film stars Edward Norton as an office drone who becomes addicted to self-help groups until he starts his own. However, I'm not allowed to talk about it. We will be spoiling the film, though I'm pretty sure the big twist is known by this time. If you haven't seen Fight Club, just go watch it and come back and listen to us. We will still be here. So, Maitland, when was the first time you saw Fight Club and what did you think? I saw Fight Club at a screening right before it was released theatrically. And I thought, holy something. This is quite a film. It really was one of those movies that you walked out of the screening and I was not the only person walking out looking a little bit dazed and not quite knowing what to say. Rob, how about yourself? The first memory I have of this film at all was uh, when I was in Cannes, the end of May in 99. They have these um, kind of like half billboards. They're usually like three-sided billboards and they're on the beach. I remember walking by and seeing the image of the soap logo and the two mug shots of them basically kind of looking at each other. And I just kind of looked at it and said, I don't know what that is. But I knew Fincher because I love Seven and the game had come out by then. So those are the only two films they'd seen by him. So I thought, okay, but I don't remember seeing TV spots. I don't remember seeing a trailer. All I know was I went to go see it with um, a friend of mine. I call my big sister, Shane, and it was a packed house, Stargrashit, opening night. It was really funny because Shane and I loved it. There was probably only about five people in this packed house that were like laughing through most of the film and just really, you know, getting it. It was a lot of couples. And I'm sure that it kind of went like this. Let's go to the movie on Friday. What would you like to see? Oh, there's a new Brad Pitt movie, honey. Let's go see the new Brad Pitt movie. You could just see the tension on the back of people's necks. It was not working in the old neighborhood where I grew up, but I loved it. Kind of since then, it's been one of those films that from time to time I go back, I find different things. I think it's kind of one of the better films from 99. And there was a lot of you know, really good film in that year. So for me, it's one of those that still stands up. There's some philosophical issues I'm sure we'll get into, but, uh, but there's more to it. I completely missed this when it came out theatrically, kind of like you, Rob, I don't remember any trailers or TV spots or any advertising about it. And I just had no idea. Or if I did know about it, something about it just didn't appeal. And then when I finally rented it on, I think I rented it on either DVD or VHS. I think it might have been DVD. I just fell in love with this movie. I couldn't get over how much I enjoyed it. And then I ended up picking up the DVD, the deluxe DVD that they released. They really went all out on that. And I just couldn't get enough of the movie. I just enjoyed it so much. I still enjoy it to this day. It's one of those movies where it just feels like it's kind of ingrained because I watch it so many times. And I should also say, I think I saw the movie before I read the book. And then I read, 
Invisible Monsters, and I just became a huge Polonic guy up until just a few years ago. I think it might have been after Rant or maybe Pygmy, but I think it was Rant that just kind of that one did me in. He's kind of like M. Night Shyamalan as far as like having the twist endings to a lot of his stuff and the twist for Rant. I was just like, yeah left me cold. So I didn't go back for more. I probably will eventually go back for more of his things, but yeah, just something about that one really turned me off. Yeah, I was very excited when we talked about doing an episode like this because um, I, I love talking about this movie and I'm so excited to talk to you guys about it. If I can go back to Rob for a second, I so cannot see what seeing this movie with a bunch of couples must have been like. Because this has got to be the worst date movie ever, like in the history of bad date movies. Fight Club has got to be way, way up there on the list. You were making out during Schindler's List? It is such a male-centered film. Like, I was joking with a friend of mine that about The Wild Bunch. And in a lot of ways, this kind of fits with that, where it it's so much about men and about a certain generation of men because for me being gen xer i saw this when i was 21 and it impacted me because i'm right at i was right at that age where i'm like i don't know if i want to go to college i don't know what i'm trying to do with myself you know there was like all of this like i'm living in my mom's house i'm like sort of angsty you know and all of this and it just hit me in the right right spot at the right time. And I've had conversations with other friends of mine who are older, who are boomer generation or late boomer generation. And they're just like, I can't like this, this movie. No, it did. It, it doesn't work for me. So for me, it, I, I see it as very male and very Gen X. And like you were saying, yeah, not a couple's film. I, I just think that it was probably one of those things where they're like, Oh, you know, it's got Brad Pitt in it. So, you know, it's eye candy for the ladies. So it'll be fine. Let's go see that. I think a lot of people probably just went in cold. I'm a boomer, and wow, that movie just knocked me flat. I'm a boomer and I'm female, but it completely hit me as striking to the essence of something that I don't know that I had even articulated. And I don't think the term toxic masculinity was as big a thing when this film was released as it has subsequently become. I mean, now everybody and his grandma is talking about toxic ma masculinity and its implications and what you should do about it. And of course there are a thousand answers to that. And none of them mean anything. So yeah, it, it really did just hit me in a really big way. About 10 years back after I had gotten divorced from my first wife, I was back in the dating pool and I remember talking to friends of mine who are like, if a man has fight club, the film or the book in his profile, in his dating profile, I will not date him. And I kind of explained, I, I was kind of like, well, why is that? I mean, I like the film. I like the book. I get it. I understand it. And they're just like, well, you get it and understand it on a philosophical level that these meatheads don't. And some of them see it as prescriptive. And to me, it's not prescriptive <laughs> in the end. As a matter of fact, they forget the last scene and then we'll talk about the book. And there's actually a last chapter kind of like clockwork orange that even makes kind of the point a little more emphatic. But I find that, like I say, it's not prescriptive. It, this is not the goal in the end. It's the destruction. Yeah. There are a lot of people that take 
Tyler Durden as being the hero. And, and by Tyler Durden, I'm talking the Brad Pitt version of Tyler Durden. Like he's the hero. He's the guy that you want to emulate. And it's like, no, no, he's kind of a tool for Jack, the narrator to get to a different point in his life. He's not the guy that you want to emulate. He's the guy that helps push Jack out of the nest a little bit, you know, but you don't want to live your life like Tyler Durden, even though he dresses really nicely. I think you can also just say he's a tool and that's the thing. That's Tyler Durden. And I like that Tyler kind of plays dual roles. I mean, he is the, the imaginary friend. He also plays Jack's father, a surrogate father. He also plays God for a little bit. I mean, there are a lot of references to God throughout the movie and just some of the phrasing and everything. Like when he says in Tyler, we trust and the very Jesus like blessing of the lips on the back of the hand or, um, <laughs> the, the way that we twist the turning the other cheek, uh, scene when Lou beats the shit out of Tyler. And it's very much like he's showing this passivity, but then he turns it around and sprays gore and blood all over Lou. And just like, you don't know where I've been. So it's like much more updated to 1999 type of thing, as opposed to like, you know, all that gore that comes off of Jesus in passion of the Christ, you know, with that, Jesus isn't like, you don't know where I've been Philistines. I like that uh, he plays so many different parts in Jack's life in order to kind of fulfill many needs. You know, Jack does not have a father. His father left when he was six. And I like how we get these rhymes of things like, oh, you know, your dad left. He started a new family. He's setting up franchises. And then what does Tyler do? He leaves and he starts setting up franchises. I love that we get these rhymes throughout this whole film. I also love that you mentioned Jesus there because there really are two Jesuses. And I say this as somebody who was raised Catholic. There was a lot of Jesus in my life at one point. And, you know, there's precious Jesus, meek and mild. Please look after this little child. But then there's also Jesus who went into a righteous fury. That's the Jesus who chased the moneylenders out of the temple. So those two sides of Jesus, I think, work kind of well in, in Fight Club because you're seeing both this figure who looks like he's a model, who maybe he's somebody to emulate, even a protector. And then there's that rage that explodes out in this furious, bloody way. And he kind of proselytizes, too, the whole idea of him giving these speeches. I mean, there are so many – they're not necessarily overly long, but there are certain parts of the movie where the movie just – kind of stops dead and you get to hear the philosophy of Tyler Durden and it's giving his little sermon on the Mount. I think right around like one hour and 10 minutes in right before Lou, when he gives his whole speech about how we were all raised to think that we're going to grow up and be the strongest and smartest men who've ever lived. I see all this potential and I see squandered. God damn it. An entire generation pumping gas. Waiting tables, slaves with white collars, advertising has us chasing cars and clothes, working jobs we hate so we can buy shit we don't need. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. We've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars. 
but we won't. We're slowly learning that fact. We're very, very pissed off. He's kind of rallying the troops at that point, and I really appreciate that. There's a lot of religious allegory in here. I mean, there's the whole thing that I think about where he gets him to go. He said it three times in the idea of three, the denial, Peter denying Jesus three times. And in some ways, when I think about it, if Durden is Jesus, then the narrator is Peter. He's the one who's going out. He's the one who's starting the church. He's, but he's the reluctant Peter, though. He doesn't really want the gig, like, um, <laughs> in some ways. He doesn't really, like, like, he knows he has to do this, but he doesn't really want to do it at the same time. And it ends with the destruction of the temple, the temple of capitalism, the temple of credit today, you know, into the infinite future. And in the end, it all comes down in that, that amazing, amazing ending. There's Tyler, there's Jack, and there's the narrator. By that, I mean, there's what Edward Norton's character says out loud to other people. There's what Edward Norton's character says via narration. And those two things do not always line up. You know, he is that calm center of the world so much as this corporate drone that I was talking about. But then you hear the voice in his head and just being incredibly cynical. You know, it's, it's, he's wearing a yellow tie. It must be Tuesday. You know, he's wearing his cornflower blue tie, you know, just these like really, really cynical thoughts where he is presenting a much different person. And I think Tyler is a very natural progression of that calm exterior, the very civil, Jack, the very sardonic narrator, and then Tyler Durden is like taking that and kicking that up to 11 with the way that he looks at the world and just gives no fucks about anything. The film really messes with our perception. When we have a narrator who talks to us, who breaks fourth wall, who speaks directly to the audience uh, in voiceover, we get into their head. Most of the time, we accept them as reliable. But in this case, there's something to be said that maybe the whole thing doesn't really even exist outside of his own head. To be honest, once you've seen the film a few times, maybe in the first minute and a half to two minutes, it pretty much puts it into your head that it is in his head. I mean, it starts in his head, literally, with the credit sequence. So in that credit sequence, I mean, it just grabs you by the throat and then literally there's a gun jammed down his throat. And then those people are always asking me if I know Tyler Durden. You know, you always hurt the ones you love or it goes both ways. And then I know this because Tyler knows this. That's all in the first three minutes before we even know who this guy is or what the hell is even going on. There's so much of this um, layering of, you know, this understanding. It's like, I understand this because he understands this. Well, is it because you're really close to each other? Well, then we find out that they actually are the same. The first time I saw it, I didn't figure it out until the reveal in the film. I mean, I, I think it's structured so well, it didn't even dawn on me. And I completely agree. It works so perfectly drawing you into the narrative that things you should have seen and things that you will never unsee once you've seen it to the end 
are not telegraphed to you. And that's an extraordinary piece of filmmaking. It really is, because it's hard to deceive people that way from the beginning, at least people who are paying attention. Again, you know, maybe not the couple who are just there on a date because, you know, the guy's being nice because he knows his girlfriend likes, you know, like likes Brad Pitt. So we'll go see this movie. It looks like maybe it has some action in it. But even people who are looking at it from the beginning with a critical eye, if you don't know what's coming, I think it's very easy to not see what's coming until you're so far in that it's not even a surprise because it's apocalyptic ending at a certain point is inevitable. It can't go anyplace else. When I was talking about those rhymes and the whole idea of words coming back several times, franchises, one of the things that I really like is that we have Jack praying that his plane gets hit. And the whole thing about why do they have oxygen masks and all this kind of stuff. And that amazing plane crash was just, I love the special effects in that. And I, I should have asked Leland Orser because when he, when Jack turns around and he sees the guy there in a seat, it always reminds me of Leland Orser. I should have asked him if he's actually in that or not. But I love that when he does start to figure out what is actually happening with Tyler, that he immediately goes into the metaphor of a plane crash. You know, we have just lost cabin pressure and then it goes on for some more. And then it's like, you know, buckle your seat belts, return your tray tables to the upright and locked position. I love that we have these things that just keep coming back and remind us of previous scenes or will telegraph future scenes. I mean, he meets Tyler officially on an airplane, and I love that camera move when the camera moves past him and then you see Tyler sitting next to him. We've seen Tyler. We saw him briefly at the airport where you've got the two moving sidewalks going past each other. And then we saw him in those subliminal flashes. We saw him in the, um, the little welcome video for the hotel. But to your point, Maitland, I didn't know what the hell was going on when I saw these flashes the first time. And you can easily not see them or just not know what's going on. They're not telegraphing the information and they're not just like spoon feeding us this stuff. You know, a few years later, I saw a beautiful mind and I was just like, oh, well, obviously Paul Bettany is inside of his head. You know, it's just like, okay, yeah, this is really easy. There are other movies that I've seen where I said it'd probably be better if these two characters were one character, but okay. You know, it would be nice if this id and the superego were actually one person and it's a manifestation of both. To put it bluntly, that movie is such a mindfuck. That's what's great about it. You have to love it. And that's why you can see it over and over again, because it doesn't matter that you know. It still is just overwhelming. Right. You watch another movie like The Usual Suspects a second time, and you're like, okay, yeah, he's Kaiser Soze. I should have seen this the whole time. Uh, you ruined it. Oh, sorry. Such a bastard. <laughs> It's only been 26 years. What's wrong with you? <laughs> I know. Felt so weird putting a spoiler warning on Fight Club. I mean, who doesn't know the twist, right? But maybe, maybe there's a kid out there that's 20 years old and doesn't know what's going on. I also have to say that I don't think that Fight Club is even as well known as usual suspects in a really general sense. I think in a, a way, it just doesn't have that, oh, but everybody knows about Kaiser Soze. It's a, a movie that I think still has a mystique because not everybody has either seen it or heard about it or seen some some 
you know, movie discussion on TV or heard something online that spoils it. So it doesn't matter. It's a movie that I think can wallop you even when you know exactly what's coming. Even if there is no suspense at all, it is still a gut punch of a movie. Just kind of looking at the comment on consumerism. Things you own end up owning you. That's what it really felt like was this attack on consumerism, this attack on careerism, you know, your khakis, your wallet, uh, the Ikea catalog bit. Some of the digital effects in here, I mean, granted, it's over 20-something years on, and some of it really holds up. I still think it looks really good. Just this sort of feeling of you can't find authenticity. You have to buy it. And it's a manufactured authenticity. I had it all. Even the glass dishes with tiny bubbles and imperfections. Proof that they were crafted by the honest, simple, hardworking, indigenous peoples of wherever. There's this loss of physicality. You can see it also in the conversation and the debate between him and Tyler in the in in the seat, you know, where they're in the airplane, where he goes, you know, how's that working out for you? Being clever. And the whole idea that basically like I'm an educated person. I'm probably too educated, maybe in some ways. And that's a problem that basically have gone so far the other way because that's what the expectation was that I'm supposed to be this learned person. I go to college, I get the job, I get the office, I get married, I have kids. We do this path. And the whole thing with the insomnia to me just reminds me of the question, well, how do you sleep at night? We say that to someone when they have something morally wrong with them, when there's something ethically bothering them, you know, how do you sleep at night knowing that you do what you do, whatever it is, you know, is what we'll say to people. Right. So, so there's becomes this thing where there's this kind of question of pain and like a spiritual pain an internal pain, Uh, not really a bodily pain per se, but just sort of this, pain of emptiness and trying to kind of figure out what to do with it. Now, one of the things that comes up quite a bit with this film is people talking about, you know, Nietzsche and and quasi-fascist stuff. And we can talk about some of those connections later. There's this God is dead kind of scenario where, yeah, they hold these, um, you know, meetings, these group meetings in church basements. But there's really no church. Nobody has come to him to try and proselytize. It's like, you know what you need? You really need Jesus, like real Jesus, not Tyler Durden Jesus. Like there's there's none of that in in some ways. I mean, the closest we get to any sort of religion in some way is that basically kind of creates a cult and borrows a lot of monk trappings with, you know, shaving your head. Um, the idea of physicality and labor, you know, you're out digging in the garden. Well, why are you digging in the garden? Well, you're just going to dig in the garden kind of thing. You know, certain things are really kind of never explained. The whole waiting three days before you get admitted to the temple type of thing. There's this whole thing with what does it mean to be a man in this era? What does it mean to be a man in this time? And of course, he goes to testicular cancer and finds his salvation. That's where he's able to release. That's where he's able to cry. Yeah, there's that thing about I can't cry around Marla because she reminds me I'm a faker. But I think it's actually a level deeper than that, in that most men in this society have been raised not to cry in general. And to try and cry in front of a woman is difficult, you know, for those kind of men. And then on top of it, to be in a mixed group. 
like he was going to all these other support groups, you notice he doesn't really cry in those. People will cry on him, but he doesn't cry with them. He only cries at testicular cancer because it's okay to cry around other men within a certain context. So I think there's this whole thing about Marla that what does it mean to be a man in this time, in this place? I think it kind of plays with these, the whole sermon that he, Tyler gives about, you know, our great war is a spiritual war. We have, you know, we're not the greatest generation. We didn't kill Nazis or the, you know, as my grandfather did. There's this whole feeling of, well, what are we doing here if we're not doing that? You know, if we can't follow in the footsteps of, of what had been modeled to us as great things, then what do we have? And then we're this, he has this whole thing about, oh, we're a whole generation of men raised by women. I think this is another place where, as a 21-year-old, this spoke really well to me because although my parents stayed married until I was 22 years old, they should have probably gotten divorced many years before, I had to sit around and basically watch my mother go, that guy over there, he doesn't have it together. So don't follow his lead. Listen to me. So in some ways, there was this similar kind of attitude that I see in the way the narrator talks about his own upbringing, his own family life. He doesn't know how to be a man because he feels he didn't have a good model for it. And he doesn't necessarily know how to be strong enough to develop his own sense of self to a certain extent. And that's kind of where Tyler comes in to play sort of this father character, this um, he's going to be the apprentice to this master. As a woman, the whole crisis of masculinity thing obviously has a very different importance to me, I guess. It's not something that I discount because there are men in my life and I understand that this is an issue. As a woman, one of the things that I found most fascinating re-watching Fight Club was the way in which that entire crisis gets displaced into objects. And it's set up from the very beginning, that entire catalog, looking for the perfect accoutrements, looking to have the perfect apartment, looking at different chairs and that little Mandela table and all of that was fascinating to me because perhaps because I grew up in a generation of men who I think weren't quite so traumatized with, with by that. I mean, a lot the men I knew by and large really didn't have a crisis about going shopping with their girlfriends or wives. They didn't feel that that was somehow emasculating. They didn't feel like having a clean apartment meant that you were less of a guy. It just meant you didn't like living in your own filth. So you vacuumed and you did your laundry and did all of these things that could be defined as as women's work. And Fight Club really crystallizes all of that in an incredibly powerful way. When it blows up his his apartment building, you just see this entire idea that this is your life being shattered. And now, okay, well, you do have to go out and find your balls. That's what this comes down to. And balls certainly play into this movie in a pretty powerful way. Testicular cancer should be no contest, I think. Well, technically, I have more of a right to be there than you. You still have your balls. Kidding. I don't know. Am I? From the aspect of women in here, I think Marla is probably the sanest person in the film. I think he drives her crazy. When I was about that age, maybe even a little older, trying to navigate dating and things like that, I know that I was a jerk at times. I couldn't say things the way I wanted to say them, or I didn't have a way to articulate things correctly. And it just sort of left whoever I was dating at the time just sort of exasperated. It's like, you know, 
running hot and cold and all of this, repeated viewings, I've become more and more, I feel more for the Marla character. I, I feel that her heart's in the right place. I mean, she goes out of her way to try and be nice to him. In many ways, the movie kind of is a romantic comedy. There's kind of the anti-meet cute, you know, where he finally kind of corners her and goes, look, we got to figure out these day-to-day support groups that we're going to. And, and the whole thing about the support groups to me is there's a line in there that he has that I really like that I think plays well. It's where they're debating about the brain, you know, you can have brain cancer, you can have parasites, you can't have the whole brain. You can't take over my whole psyche. You can't have everything, you know, in terms of the brain. Really, what is at the core of this film? Totally. I mean, because in the end, he ends up with her. He just can't commit to it. He's afraid of it. He he doesn't know how to deal with relationships. Didn't have a good model for relationships, obviously. He believes that it's consuming. The other thing that I was thinking about, and, and granted, this film is kind of expressionistic to a certain extent, is, you know, most people know Mon from the scream, but he had a painting called The Kiss in which you have these two figures kissing and you can't see where the separation between the two is. And I think in some ways it's a very anxiety ridden painting. And I think it's much the same for him where it's like, I want to be in this relationship. I know this is where I need to go. I know that I have to do this in some way, but I just don't know how to navigate it. Right. I got to keep acting like a jerk and pushing her off and doing these horrible things. The Marla character is the one that when you go back and rewatch this, that you feel so different about, or at least if you're, hopefully a healthy human being you would start to feel very different about because when you're watching it the first time it feels like she is having sex with tyler but then also making advances on jack and i really love the one moment when jack is asking her what are you getting out of all this what i mean all this why do you keep is this making you happy Sometimes. I don't know. I don't understand. I mean, why why does a weaker person need to latch on to a strong person? What 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 is that? What do you get out of it? No, it's it's not the same thing at all. I mean, it's totally different with us. We're, we're... Us? What do you mean by us? I'm sorry. Are you, do you hear this? Hear what? You're not hearing all that noise. Just hold on a second. No, wait. What were you saying? Don't change the subject. I don't want to talk about this. And he's talking about the relationship between Marla and Tyler. She thinks that he's talking about them. She turns it around and then immediately he's like, well, my relationship with Tyler is different. You know, he doesn't say Tyler, but it's like, it's different. And so there's this whole double talk that's going on through this entire conversation that when you go back and you rewatch it with the knowledge of what's going on, Man, oh man, it really puts the zap on your head because it is so clever the way that they put it together and just the way that it's making him examine his relationship with Tyler while also talking about their relationship. And then, yeah, just throughout the rest of the film, realizing, you know, I love when uh, she gives him the, uh, did I call you? I'm wondering if that's the first time that he as the much more confident Tyler is meeting her that she's probably never seen that aspect of his personality before. I really don't think that she has. So him showing up 
as Tyler Durden is going to really make her question who the hell is this guy? And then immediately they fall into bed together. One of the greatest sex scenes. I love the music. I love the way that that's all put together. And then after that, you get the wonderful bit of Edward Norton waking up. And if you were to play a drinking game of how many times Ed Norton wakes up, I mean, you're going to get really hammered. That is absolutely true. And yet the wake up never has that, oh, I can't tell the dream from reality thing because the reality is so completely warped and inflected by personal perspectives. I think at a certain point, you just have no idea where you are. You have no idea whether that house is a real house or whether it's an imaginary house, whether those those peeling walls are really peeling walls or whether it's as though he's in a fever dream or a hallucination. Everything about the physical space of this film is unreliable. And yet that means you kind of have to take it all at face value because there are no signposts where you can look at it and say, oh, right, that's a fantasy, that's a dream sequence, that's a hallucination. It's hallucinatory almost from the beginning. You don't realize it at the beginning, but it doesn't take long for you to realize as you're watching this film that you cannot trust what you're seeing, that there's a level of crazy going on that you can't put your finger on. You can't say, oh, well, okay, anything that unfolds in this way that's definitely a hallucination or some kind of craziness. And these other things, okay, that's some kind of objective reality. The entire thing is one huge muddle that you can't pick your way out of, which is one of the reasons that I think the end of it is so fantastic, because that's the logical conclusion. It all falls down because there's nothing that it's standing on. There is a real dream logic to this film insofar as the way that we see people outside of Fight Club and then immediately they're inside of Fight Club. You know, you have that sequence of you're going to go start a fight with someone and you're going to lose. And then unless you're paying attention, you might not realize that the guy from the car dealership and the priest that Holt McCallany is spraying, that those are the next two guys that you see fighting. Or when they're on the bus, Tyler and Jack are on the bus and the guy pushes past them and says, excuse me. That's the guy that immediately you see Tyler just beating on his balls in that next fight. Speaking of balls. This is kind of dream logic that you just take these characters that you see from real life and you put them in your dreams. They end up in your fantasies. Jake was there and Slim and Ben. Maybe it was just a dream. It was a dream of extraordinary magnitude. And I love that we just increase those numbers of those people that we see in the real world, or then you might see them in Fight Club and then see them in the real world, like Ricky, the office worker, or the maitre d' at the food court, which has got to be a really exclusive food court, because every food court I've gone to has never had a maitre d'. When we talk about the Fight Club itself, like the actual group, to me, what it really represents is a true meritocracy, which is what America is supposed to be, right? That basically these men go in there, they fight each other, and the best man wins. And that's what we're all told from age zero that, you know, basically that's what America is, kid. It's a meritocracy. You can rise and fall based on your own initiative. So in some ways, what Fight Club does, especially when you get into the thing where 
they've got waiters, they've got the the copy boy, they've got they've got the workers. So it becomes this revolt of the of the proletariat, but it's not a communist revolt. They're not doing it to level the playing field for everyone. They're doing it so that they can put under the clever folks like he used to be or was or is. And that's really, to a certain extent, how this philosophically that that kind of works. But when you talk about grounding it in a reality, well, there's several different things in here that ground it into a reality. One is I'm glad they were able to get the actual logos for things in the trash can because that adds real weight when you see a Starbucks logo and a Krispy Kreme or whatever it is. The other thing that adds this level of reality, and this is what also leads me to believe that maybe he's a Detroiter, is the formula because the formula was real. And that is the auto recall scene. And that auto recall, that formula was actually the formula that was used for the Pinto in the 70s. It was an $11 part that could have kept the cars from blowing up. But Lee Iacocca at the time who was running Ford said, you know what? It's got to be under a certain price point. Who cares? And they shoved these things out the door and they had these recalls and eventually they had to get rid of it. And it was one of the biggest auto recall mistakes in, well, it wasn't even a mistake. They actually just went ahead and did it anyway here in Detroit and became part of the downfall of us in many ways, because that's when the Japanese brands came in and started eating our lunch starting in the 1970s. So, so, so the formula, and then you have, it's just those little things that help to ground it in reality. So that by the time, as you were saying, Maitland, when you get to the end and it's like, we're getting rid of the debt record, we're going to blow these buildings up. You're like, well, no wonder you're so cynical. You work for a company that's, doing this formula, you know, on, on what is the value of human life? I just can't believe this, though. I don't see any reality, Rob, when you're talking about, you know, when he's going on about how when deep space exploration comes about that everything's going to be named after corporations. I mean, that's ridiculous to think that space travel is going to be privatized and that it's going to be a bunch of billionaires out there flying their rockets like they're big phallic symbols. That's fucking ridiculous. So don't even talk to me about that. Never heard of anything like that until it happened three times in one year this year. So there you go. That was one of the things that really struck me was, well, holy shit, that just happened, didn't it? It's not just that. The The other point that I like in there is when he gets caught with the rules in the copier and the boss is like, what is this? You know, and, you know, what am I supposed to make do? a managerial decision? And he says, you know, the person who who wrote that is sick and they are likely to go office to office, shooting their coworkers. Now, again, sadly, Metro Detroit, November 1991, one of the first post office shootings, which led to the term going postal, was here in Royal Oak. So this is much more common now, sadly. But at the time in 1999, it wasn't. I mean, it wasn't as prevalent as it's become. It's almost like, oh, someone didn't get shot at work this week in the news. I hate to sound so cynical. And in fact, when I was watching it this time, I was thinking, wow, things that were so shocking to us then are there every day now. So I can actually see how people in their 20s, early 30s, looking at Fight Club might say, well, I don't know, what was the big deal about this? I mean, yeah, that kind of stuff happens. And okay, here it is in a movie. I think it, it, it's probably hard if you're not, say, our age, to realize 
what a gut punch that view of American capitalism, American consumer society, just American life in general was. It was it was a punch to the face. And now it's just, well, that's just the way stuff is. And you got to suck it up and, and move on. The one thing to be completely serious that I found very interesting comparing now to then, or even say five years ago to 1999 is when Jack goes to the doctor and like, Hey, I'm in real pain here. And I'm, you know, have this horrible case of insomnia. I mean, a few years ago, I'd be like, okay, great. Let me get my pad out and start giving you some opioids or whatever you need. And here you go. I mean, it is interesting to me that the doctor doesn't really take him seriously. And that also he kind of throws it back on Jack to say, if you want to see real pain, go down to the support groups. And to your point from earlier, Rob, I feel that he's really discounting what the experience of Jack is having. You know, he's having a real difficult time. I mean, regardless of insomnia, which is a horrible, horrible thing, just if he's having that much of a difficult time, you should really be doing something for him rather than just discounting him and saying, if you want to see real pain, just go down to these support groups, you know, fuck you basically. But at the same time, it's two guys talking to each other. And I think that because they're roughly about the same age, they look kind of the same. Like if he was an older guy, you know, or whatever, but, but it's like two guys the same age. And he's just like, and pardon my language here. Why are you being a pussy? Come on, snap out of it already. You know, which is basically what I was told around that era when I was trying to figure out my own depression that I was dealing with throughout high school in my early 20s. Oh, yeah. You completely get discounted on that. Right. It was either they, they couldn't figure it out, the medications were wrong, whatever, you know, and it was just like basically, you know, I, I don't know what to do with this. I'm stuck. And it's like, well, in, in the case of this guy, he was just like, well, whatever, you know. Man up. Yeah. Grow some balls. Or the classic nut up or shut up. We were talking a little bit about religion earlier, and I've always thought this, and I just kind of wanted to run this past you guys. I get real strong Shroud of Turin vibes from when he cries on Bob's breasts, like when he looks down and sees that. And it almost feels like you get that echo again when he gets punched so hard that you can see his face. It looks like his face to me on the floor, but in blood after the one guy hits him so hard. Yeah, most definitely. I mean, there is a lot of religious symbolism in here. I mean, when they pull Tyler off at one point, he's got his you know arms stretched out. I look at the film and go, he's creating, I, I see it more as a cult, but you know, basically what's the difference between a cult and an organized religion is hundreds or thousands of years of codification. But, but really, I mean, Part of the reason why he's like, you know, here are the rules and don't tell anyone the rules is kind of for two reasons. One, I don't want anyone to know I'm crazy because I am. But number two, it's he knows that by keeping it secret in some way, that only is going to get the word out. That's only going to grow people's interest. And when people join secret societies, I don't care if it's the Masons or it's, you know, a fight club or whatever. Secret phrases, rituals, rules, all of that adds to the connection. I know something that the average person doesn't know. And that, I mean, we see it right now with QAnon. That's the whole thing. It's like, this is something. No, you don't understand what's really going on. You're asleep. 
you need to wake up. And that is you got to take a, that red pill. part of this. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, and this came out the same year as that. This came out the exact same year as The Matrix. So they couldn't reference blue pill, red pill. But basically, in a way, that's what they're doing. So so to me, there's this whole thing about wanting to touch the divine. The, the choral music, those like Gregorian chants when he cries the first time. And then at the same time, really with the nihilism, it just goes back to Nietzsche. And like Nietzsche said, well, God is dead, you know? So trying to find spiritual connection or, or in some way in, in a time when we know that basically the idea that doesn't even work anymore is basically the point. God is dead that Nietzsche was making. And speaking of the matrix, I mean, what is the matrix, right? It's, it's the world is the lie that you pull over your own eyes to hide the truth. That's exactly what you see going on in Fight Club. It's about the lie and about the truth and about the commingling of the two of them until it becomes this massive system that seems to have no form and no shape. And yet it has all form and all shape. Rather than God being dead in this film, I like the idea that Tyler says where it's you have to accept the fact that maybe God doesn't like you. In fact, he might hate you. So I don't know which is worse, if God is dead or if that he actively hates you. And then at the same time, his connection there that that our fathers are the models for God. So really what he's saying is your father hates you, that you probably shouldn't even have been born. You shouldn't even be here. And that is maybe at the core of what your struggling with is this whole thing, which in in a lot of ways, one of the films that I have always really related to because of that is is the original Frankenstein, you know, because the original James Whale Frankenstein, here's the character, the monster, isn't asked to come here, dealing with it in the same way that all of us are who are here. It's like, well, I didn't ask to come here and this place really ain't that friendly to me. So so you feel nothing but sympathy for that character. In some ways, it's that similar kind of turn where it's looking at it and going, the fact that you're here doesn't mean anything. But where he ends it is that he ends it with the thing that because you're here, it doesn't mean anything. He doesn't go the next step for me, which is you have to figure out what that means to you and what those values are for you. And that's the goal. Some of his litany is interesting, too. You know, you're talking about the religious stuff, and part of that is also giving you the rituals and giving you the things that you're going to say, you know, peace be with you and also with you. This whole idea of him saying things and then you hear the space monkeys repeating them. Even when he leaves, I like the whole idea of when Tyler, you know, he says, uh, take care, champ, to, uh, to Ed Norton, and it's just like, okay, yeah, that's such a father. Line and then he disappears just like Jack's father disappeared. But then the whole house is this organic machine that is running without him, and you hear all the space monkeys saying the same lines that you heard Tyler saying earlier. And those lines, the, that litany that he gives, feels so. People complain a lot about there was a generation where everybody got participation ribbons. And that's what it feels like is that he is really railing against that whole idea. You know, the whole you are not a beautiful and unique snowflake, just really trying to tear people down as far as like all of those things that you were told when you were growing up about how you are special. 
you're not special. And I know that that does play into the whole idea of re-education, that he is just tearing them down so that he can build them back up into what he wants or needs. But it, it feels very, it feels very Fox News to me. This whole like, oh, well, you bunch of, uh, you know, no good millennials, you all got participation medals and that just weakened our entire country. You know, this, this whole thing of, uh, I can't remember who that a-hole is other than Tucker Carlson, but I, I remember seeing recently Carlson and talking all about how feminized uh, America is now. You guys, you, you've never seen Fight Club? I mean, you basically are just ripping off Tyler Durden. So for all the women's empowerment talk that continues to pace like it's 1973, the numbers are really clear. It's men in this country who are in deep trouble by every measure. Masculinity is under attack in this country, and men are withering and dying as a result of it. That's not an overstatement. Anybody familiar with the social science can confirm that. Well, I mean, Snowflake, before this film, I mean, that, if anything, that is the big cultural ad from this film. There's there's really three that I've pulled out. One is Snowflake. Two is um, jokes around the rules. The first rule of chess club is you do not talk about chess club. What, like the first rule of perv club is no talking about perv club? The first rule of playgroup is there is no playgroup. First rule of pedo club is don't talk about pedo club. The first rule of fight club, you don't talk about fight club. Right, but what's the first rule of fight club? You do not talk about fight club. The first rule of breakfast club is we do not talk about breakfast club. First rule of brain club, you don't talk about brain club. The first rule of cupcake club... There's no rules. It just helps to be stoned. I mean, I know it had been around before this, but really mixed martial arts with Ultimate Fighting Championship, UFC stuff, that really takes off after this film. So I'm not saying that two were core. I'm not saying that, oh, because of Fight Club, this. I, I kind of see that maybe this was zeitgeisty, that it knew. I'm a boxing fan. Like, I'm, I've got a autographed photo of Muhammad Ali on my desk here. And, like, that to me is, I, I would rather watch boxing. Like, I don't want to watch two guys in a in an octagon pummel each other in that way. Like, that's not interesting to me. Um, maybe I'm too old. I don't know. It's the sport of kings. I thought that was racing. Or maybe golf. The point that you make where he's going into the whole thing about, you know, God and your father, he probably hates you. And, and that whole sermon piece is during the soap making. Right before the chemical burn. I love the use of soap in several different ways. One, he, again, in the sermon kind of like this is the thing you notice with Tyler. Whenever he talks, it's always sermon. It's, it's typically sermon. I'd say if you were to take the script and mark it off, it's probably 70% sermon, 30% regular dialogue. But the whole soap making, I mean, he explains it as, you know, soap originally started because of human sacrifices that were done on the hill and the thing rolled down and it got into the water and you know, so he's got this whole thing about the idea of human sacrifice that without sacrifice, like literal human sacrifices, then nothing happens. Nothing good can ever come out of it. This is the point where they go, oh, well, it's nihilistic. It's to a point. I mean, if you were completely nihilistic, I guess you would have to say that you don't believe in anything or you don't do anything. And of course, we know that's exhausting. We just have to look at Uli from The Big Lebowski. Uli doesn't care about anything. He's a nihilist. Oh, that must be exhausting. The idea of not believing in anything and then trying to come up with, you know, what are what are the new values? What are the new goals for the society? That is exactly it. It's I don't know. You know, as a woman watching this film, there is a, a 
very core thing about Fight Club that I will never, ever connect to. Because no matter how much I've read and discussed about the issue of toxic masculinity, I do not understand it. I, I just don't understand, I guess, in a very real way, the things that men feel they need to live up to. And that's not a generational thing. I mean, that's a thing that I think has existed as long as there have been men. They have to live up to something. And women are often cast in the role of, and I have to be the moderator for it. Somehow I have to be the other side of it and calm these guys down and show them another way you can look at this. But I do not understand that primal, I guess, masculine impulse. And one of the things I find fascinating about Fight Club is seeing it depicted in such a direct and yet stylized way. It's absolutely talking about masculinity with a cast of characters to whom that phrase is incomprehensible. Masculinity is is something that, well, they're men. They just know what it is. And there's no examination of it. And yet the entire film is an examination of it. And I find that mesmerizing and also horrifying. And I'm sure I am not alone in that. To be honest, I don't sign up for the Tyler Durden version of masculinity. I mean, I got in plenty of fights when I was a school kid, but I didn't like it. <laughs> you know, I didn't enjoy getting in fights on the schoolyard ever. That's not who I am. When you consider the, you know, the Great War sermon, really what it's about is this his encapsulation of what a man is 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 my grandfather's generation that it's the World War II vets. That they went, they did their duty, they came home, they shut their mouths, they lived the suburban life, whatever that was, and... We liked it fine. My grandfather never said I loved you to anyone. <laughs> like He was completely uncomfortable with his emotions. But then again, he dealt with the Great Depression and watching his friends get killed on islands in the Pacific next to him. So I, I guess that has a tendency to, to traumatize you. I, I don't want to have to live through that. I'm glad I haven't had to live through that. I'm sorry he had to live through that. It's horrible. That little bit about... My dad never went to college, so it was real important that I go. That sounds familiar. So I graduate. I call him up long distance. I said, Dad, now what? He says, get a job. Same here. Now I'm 25. Make my yearly call again. I say, Dad, now what? He says, I don't know. Get married. I mean... You can't get married. That's those things, those expectations from previous generations where it's just like, yeah, that's maybe what you did. But I've got a lot of friends who didn't get married until way later in their lives or got married a second or third time way later in their lives because they realized that wasn't the way that I should have done this. This is not for me. You know, this whole pattern that they're talking about, that idea of you have to be a man, you have to get that job, you have to be the breadwinner, you have to get married, your wife now has to take care of the house, those kind of things. It's like, yeah, that's a whole different mindset that we don't have. There was a great uh phrase that someone said to me before that tradition is peer pressure from dead people. And I really I, I really like that concept. Why do we do this? It's tradition. I have what I consider to be a funny story about the scene that we keep talking about, the whole uh, middle children of history scene. 
So years and years ago, I was working at a ad agency. It was like a whole bunch of us that had gone out to lunch. And it was one of these, like, tell us the most interesting fact about you. And one of the writers that I worked with, he said, well, I was in Fight Club. And I was just like, well, fuck you. You were not in Fight Club. What the fuck are you talking about? Because I've seen the movie like dozens and dozens of times at this point. It's probably like 2006 when I'm having lunch with this guy. I'm like, what do you do? No, you weren't in Fight Club. So he tells me this story and he goes, uh, I was out in LA with a friend of mine and my friend was working on Fight Club and they went to shoot that scene. And it must have been early in the proceedings because they had the um, extras casting. The extras casting person for a movie called Fight Club brought in all of these people that they assumed would be in a fight club. So your burly biker type dudes. And Fincher sees this and he just hits the fucking roof and he just sends everybody, you know, sends all of these extras home and is just like, okay, if anybody has anybody that they want to be in this movie that kind of fits the Fight Club model, bring them in. So my coworker gets this call while he's hanging out, while his buddy's working on this movie. Hey, do you want to come down to the set? They need extras. (laughs) So he goes down to the set. It's him and all these regular guys. And this guy, this writer that I worked with, he's probably like, I don't know, six foot four, six foot five, super gangly, and just did not look like a boxer, a biker type of dude. He just was a normal, run-of-the-mill, geeky type guy. He's telling me, he's like, oh, I'm in this scene. And I replay the scene in my head. And sure enough, there's a moment where the camera comes around and there's this guy. He's to the right of of the, the screen. Really pretty good shot of him. He's wearing glasses. He's wearing like a greenish t-shirt. And sure enough, this is my coworker in there. And I'm like, you got to be fucking kidding me. <laughs> he's in this. And he was telling me that they were in this on set all day long. You know, Fincher is famous for or infamous for doing multiple, multiple takes. Apparently, Brad Pitt was a very nice guy and was just joking around with people between takes. And at one point, he's like, hey, do you want to uh, take bets on how many takes this scene is going to be? <laughs> and all the extras are like, no, because if we get close to it, you'll fuck up on purpose and get another one. <laughs> sure enough, uh, yeah, my coworker uh, from Organic is standing in the background behind, uh, behind Brad Pitt in that scene. And I just... Yeah, I, I still find it so funny when I see him show up in that movie now and that I had no memory of him until he pointed out, like, I'm here. And I'm like, oh, wow. Okay. You know, it's like you, Jared Leto, you know, <laughs> so it was kind of kind of cool. Speaking of Jared Leto, I had completely forgotten that he was in this movie until I watched again and then realized that not only is he in it, he's in it a lot. And you can't miss him because he's, you know, his hair is bleached that white blonde. And looking at him this time around, I was amazed by how good he is. You know, what an exceptional depiction of that character. He managed to get with, you know, he's in a lot of scenes, but there aren't a lot of scenes where he's in the foreground of it. And he creates this incredible presence every time he's there. And to be honest, him being in this, at first when I saw that he was, you know, 
in the credits, I was like, oh man, because I'm a, I'm a Gen Xer and he was on this show called my so-called life. Jordan Catalano. And he was like the cutie boy that all the girls in high school really liked. So I'm like, oh no, not him. So in a lot of ways, like I think fight club was like the turn for him in the way kind of like Johnny Depp did the same thing with 21 jump street where he was on, I'm on the teen show. And then there's that one film that goes, Oh, this guy, he can do dark. He can do all this other stuff. And now we see him and he's amazing. So I don't hold uh, my so-called life against him anymore. I actually really like, I was very similar in that. I was just like, ah, man, but yeah, he proved that he's got so much talent and I really like that. He becomes this, really interesting spot in the film that Jack becomes jealous of him and his relationship with Tyler, even though Jack is Tyler and it becomes this weird three way love triangle type of thing between the three characters very briefly. Like Leto doesn't know it. Angel face doesn't know that he is, you know, now suddenly got a target on his back and then he gets the shit just beat out of him by Jack to the point where everybody else in the fight club is very uncomfortable. And I like that those moments of seeing those other faces, you know, the, the, the look of shock on the other people's faces in the fight club. I mean, that whole idea of the reactions that you get from the people in the fight club are very, very well done. The moment when Tyler leans over Lou and has all of the blood just pouring onto Lou, you know, blood's not any sort of like bodily fluid just pouring onto him. And the one guy throws up and I'm just like, that's great. That reaction is perfect. And especially it's perfect for 1999 when we have gone through the, the AIDS crisis and we're super afraid of other people's blood. I love that there's that tinge of homoeroticism going on there, but then really it's the whole angel face thing. And just like this whole idea of how dare you come between me. It's not just that he thinks that Tyler's Tyler fucks the way that he should fuck or wants to fuck. I mean, basically I think he wants to fuck Tyler I mean, and who wouldn't, right? I mean, Brad, Pitt is just absolutely gorgeous in this movie. He had muscles where I didn't even know that you could have muscles. Like I'd never seen like when he opens up the door and you see uh, Marla in the background and he's got the Playtex living gloves on in the foreground. I'm just like, I've never seen a body look like that. Uh, he just looks amazing. The thing in there that you talk about where he's like, I wanted to destroy something beautiful. He's talking about all the horrible things he wants to do. Like, you know, I want to kill the pandas and open up the, the valves on the oil tankers on those beautiful beaches and all of these things. To me, his violence against the Gerald Leto character is just one more step in the escalation to see how far people who are in, how far they'll, they'll go. Because you get to a point within, and it doesn't matter what cult you're talking about, the leader will ask you to do things that work against your self-interest. So, for example, you can see the homework piece as one of it, where it's like, instead of going out and beating someone up, you're going to go out and you're going to lose a fight. So you're going to go out and get hurt, or you're going to come into this and I'm going to pound your face, in, or I'm going to do these things. And I want to see how far I can get you to go. I'm going to make you stand on the step for three days, and then I'll bring you in, and then I'll have you do all this physical labor. Because by doing that, it's like, I know how far you're bought in, that 
when I tell you to execute the orders to blow those buildings up or to do whatever it is that I want to do, you're going to do it. You will drink the Kool-Aid. You will blow up the buildings. That is where it's really kind of honest. That's true. I've been watching a lot of Netflix documentaries on cults over the last year. Like if you haven't seen, what is it? Wild Wild Country, I think it is about Bhagwan and all of those folks out there in Oregon in the early 80s. Oh, man, it's like you see the same thing with them, where it's like we bring you in, we break you down and we build you the way we want you to build you. And like I say, with him just beating the shit out of this guy who then becomes basically his number one man. He's the one who stands up to him. And, you know, when he's like, oh, my God, we can't do this when he's not, you know, being Tyler. And he's like, sir, this is the plan. You told us to do this. Oh, and he takes charge of Bob's burial, too. He's just like, we got to bury him in the backyard. That It's him that speaks up. Because he's so bought in, he's so hardcore, that it's like, at that point, that's where the shift happens, where it's like, you don't even matter anymore. It kind of reminds me of the scene, like, like I said, going back to this kind of Christ allegory, there's the scene in um, Last Temptation, where Willem Dafoe's character is talking to, I think it's Paul or John Baptist, I can't remember, and he's like, why are you saying these lies about me? And he goes, you don't matter anymore. These people need this. Go away. We don't need you. It's like those stories that you hear about Tyler Durden. You know, he gets uh, facial reconstruction surgery every three years. Born in a mental hospital. Born in a mental hospital, you know. And I, I love that, that, that it is Bob telling Tyler, a.k.a. Jack, uh, you know, about him. And then you were talking about that whole thing of like, well, you know, the first rule is I'm not supposed to tell you, you know, like making it secret, making it, you know, so lascivious that you want to be a part of that. I love that Project Mayhem comes up while he's asleep, you know, that that Project Mayhem happens without him ever hearing the term before that. One of the things before that, though, this is where it shifts from I'm building my own to proselytization. Now, I, I know that you're going to look at this scene and go, how is that proselytization? But, but the robbery scene where they go into the, into the party store or the bodega or whatever, and they hold the guy at gunpoint and, you know, take his driver's license and all of that. And it's all done out of this concept of good, right? It's like, oh, I just saved that man from pointlessness. But really, that's, that's proselytization. That is pure and simple. I know what you need. This is what you need. I'm going to force you to take it. And I know people that have been held at gunpoint who have, you know, had their purses snatched or whatever, you know, robbed on the street. That doesn't make them feel like, oh, my God, I'm so glad to be alive. They actually, like, deal with trauma over that <laughs> for many, many years to come. So the, the way the film in, imports it to us through his mindset is I just saved this man's life. And it's like, no, you traumatized him. Poor man. That guy is going to be afraid to do a lot of things. Like if there was a side film of his life, he would probably be at home, like under the blanket for a week and like watching around, like, you know, who's coming to get me. And then in therapy for the next 10 years, it is this total destruction of somebody's sense of self. And that is really what Fight Club is about. It's about the destruction of a sense of self and then replacing it with something that somebody else brings to you, but says to you, no, I'm really setting you free. I'm showing you what's in your heart. And this is going to make you a new person, a better person, a better version of yourself. When in fact, it is completely about the destruction of yourself and the creation of another self that somebody else has determined 
another thing that's absolutely terrifying because that's religion that's cults that's brainwashing that's all those things that everybody likes to think well yeah yeah but that happens in other places at other times or that happens to people who are weak or people who are somehow so damaged by their childhoods by a terrible thing that happened to them by something that you can look at and say but that's not me i didn't have that childhood that thing didn't happen to me i'm self-aware enough that i could never be drawn into that kind of thing fight club says sure you could i mean if you're a scientologist you see life you see things the way they are in all its glory you know all of its complexity uh and the more you know as a scientologist you don't become overwhelmed by it yeah i could never believe that there's a pedophile ring that takes place in the bottom of a pizza parlor that's crazy talk who would believe that that's nonsense we don't even have to go that far amway multi-level marketing I mean, really? I mean, there's the um, the the documentary on uh, Amazon Prime I watched about the ladies selling leggings and how that became this, you know, multi-level marketing and how that basically became a cult and how some of them are like, oh, my God, I had to get out of it. And it was crazy. Like, I thought I was just selling leggings. But no, there's so much more to it. Jack is to blame for Bob's death. When you go back and take a look at it, that. You have to be strong enough to survive the three days on the porch before you can come in. And when the guy yells at Bob, hey, you're too old or too fat or whatever to join our cult, Bob just picks up his stuff and starts to walk away. And then Jack's like, no, 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 you know, come on, Bob, come on. And really, I blame him for what ends up happening with Bob. That scene of Bob's death and the whole thing of, you know, this is a man. He has a name. His name is Robert Paulson. When Holt McCallany takes that and then spins it into this whole, basically, I would consider religious allegory, you know, and death, we have a name. It so reminds me of Life of Brian. It so reminds me of when Brian loses his shoe. Let us follow his example. What? Let us like him. Hold up one shoe and let the other be upon our foot, for this is his sign that all who follow him shall do likewise. No, 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 the shoe is a sign that we must gather shoes together in abundance. Cast off the shoes, follow the good. No, let us gather shoes together, let me. No, no, it is a sign that like him we must think not of the things of the body, but of the face and head. Put it on. Clear off. Take the shoes and follow him. And that that becomes this, again, this religious thing when he goes across the country and you've got the guys who have never met Big Bob all in the back room of the one kitchen saying his name is Robert Paulson becomes, again, this religious litany of here's something that we say when we are part of Project Mayhem. Project Mayhem is a fascinating way of expressing what's happening there, because project sounds like something serious. It sounds like. People sat down and they drew graphs and they pulled statistics and they came up with this really reasonable and intelligent plan that anybody could accept. Hey, you could too. When in fact, it is sheer lunacy, self-destructive, socially destructive, physically and mentally excoriating. And yet there it is. It sounds so reasonable. And that, again, is part of what makes Fight Club 
so chilling because that's what cults are. That's what religion is. That's what peer pressure is. It's all fine at the beginning. And then you just go along with it until suddenly the things that aren't fine at all by any objective standard look fine too, because you've taken all those steps on the journey. And so now you're going to see it through to the end. The thing I was thinking about in this time, okay, so 99, a few years before, and especially that one scene where he's talking about, um, you see the sort of the, the graphic, the camera go down into into the sub-basement parking deck where the van is. That almost seems to me a lift from the first World Trade Center, which was only a few years before this, where I think it was a rental van like that that they tried to blow up you know, in the parking deck in the subfloor to try and collapse the building. Obviously, it didn't work that time. Two years later, after this movie came out, in 2001, it did. So by ramming planes into it. So it's... When was the Oklahoma City bombing? That was 95. 95, yeah. And that was a rider truck parked outside, yeah. Was it last Christmas or the Christmas before where you had that van in? God, I, I hate that my memory is so bad, but was it... Yeah, Nashville. And I don't even know whatever ended up happening with that. That RV that blared out a warning that some type of an explosion was coming, it happened on Christmas Day, so not a whole lot of people around. What does this tell you about the motive? We also know that that RV was parked near the AT&T building. Yeah, and then how many bombings have taken place in uh, in in London with that same idea of having the van that's going to blow up? I mean, there was just one, I want to say, pretty recently. Maitland, you were talking about this idea of, you know, normalizing things like Project Mayhem and just how like, okay, yeah, we, we put all this stuff together and, and immediately my mind went to, can you make that icon in cornflower blue? Because it's basically the same thing that's going on in the business world. I mean, you have that crazy business speak between the boss and Jack, the whole, like, you want me to deprioritize my primary action items? You know, it's like that business talk is, and I find myself doing it a lot in my job. It, it's crazy talk. And that's also very much it helps normalize the shit that he's doing. I mean, Robbie, you're talking about the formula for recalls. It's like, yeah, this is horrific stuff, but they can all justify it through their business objectives. You know, Oh, I'm going to reprioritize my action items. You know, that helps when it comes to these are real human lives. You know, you have those amazing guys like, Oh, very modern art talking about the way that the fat is burned to the seed or look at the uh, way that the teenagers uh, braces are wrapped around the ashtray. You know, it's like these guys have been in this business long enough that they are completely just burned out, sardonic, cynical to the point of just being able to make these jokes, these dark jokes about stuff and yeah, how do you get there? By seeing it every day and by talking about things in terms like primary action items. Right. Euphemism. There's a uh, a favorite fake ad from a 1973 National Lampoon I like to share from time to time. And it's like, you know, how to escape unpleasantness. Euphemism. Don't say this. Say this. So it's like how to how to make things, you know, feel better for you through using things like 
action items or, you know, it's, it's a formula. It's, it's not actual people dying. It's just a formula. That's all. You know, we just, we just plug in numbers and move on. And, and it, it's the idea of in some ways kind of, uh, technocrats, you know, this is a comment on technocrats as well as it is a comment on consumerism and all, all the, like freak out, I guess, that we were having as we got towards the, the millennium. I can't remember which country it was, if it was Rwanda or another one, but I remember the program of ethnic cleansing, you know, like rather than saying genocide, and I didn't realize that genocide has real like legal terms that you have to abide by. Like you apparently if you can't go in front of the United Nations and say, this is a genocide that you actually have to like meet criteria for that. Because I remember there were, uh, I think it was Colin Powell a few years ago was like said something was a genocide and it's like, no, no, technically it's not a genocide. And it's like, what the fuck, man? You know, like ethnic cleansing, ethnic cleansing sounds so pleasant, you know, but genocide is a horrific word. And both are horrible things. But yeah, one is very much a euphemism for doing awful stuff. But, you know, it's like if I could get my ethnicity cleansed once a month, I'd be happy. Can I send it out? Can I pick it up in the morning? You know, that would be great. But, yeah, you don't want I'll be happy to have ethnic cleansing. But genocide, that's a whole different thing, guys. I concluded that genocide has been committed in Darfur and that the government of Sudan and the Janjaweed bear responsibility and that genocide may still be occurring. Fight Club asserts at the very beginning that this use of language to obfuscate, to make things seem acceptable, is very much what it's about. In the same way that it uses the language of, as you said, advertising, of corporate relations, of you know the HR department. That's, that's the classic. Anybody who's ever had anything to do with HR knows that nobody is ever fired. Nobody is ever demoted. Uh, nobody is ever punished in any way for anything. There are just a series of corporate steps that we have to go through. And we have steps for every single situation you can possibly imagine. And the ultimate message of that is, but it's nothing personal. That piece of shit who just fired 800 people from better.com in, in his speech, he says, I'm laying you off. And it's like, no, no, you're not laying them off. You're not going to hire them back at some point. You are firing these people. This is not a layoff. Get your terminology straight. But it sounds so much better. I'm laying you off. Like, I'm not going to be harping on you anymore. I'm laying off that. I'm I'm going to lay you off. You can rest and, and lay down with this. You're laid off. But no, frankly, you're firing all these people because you're a monster. The good news is you're fired. Oh, and, and the best term of that kind is furlough. We're going to furlough some workers. No, you're throwing them out on their asses. You're firing them. They're not coming back. Too bad for them. But no, it's cloaked in, in a lovely, neutral kind of term. And yeah, Fight Club is the kick in the balls to that kind of terminology. Fight Club, right out there. Part of the reason why I love the movie so much is because of that. It's showing you that, which to me makes it the, the, the child of one of my one of my heroes, one of my canonized saints in my life, George Carlin, who was the, the king of language like that, where he would go, look, this is what they mean, but this is what they're saying. <laughs> you know, and why? Because they don't want you to get upset about it. 
They're trying to lull you. And on a tiny personal aside that has nothing to do with anything, George Carlin used to drink at my grandparents' bar. One of the things that is being sold to a lot of people in this movie, you know, I was talking about, hey, give Jack something. You know, he's asking for help. He's asking for, what is it, lipstick, red, secondals, red and blue, whatever it is. I mean, just the use of pharmaceutical language throughout this film is very interesting. You know, Marla ODing on Xanax when they're having their conversation at Lou's Tavern at the beginning, how they reel off that it's almost like a, a mantra of uh, Rogaine, Alestra, Viagra. And I find it, you know, Alestra, both men and women, but Viagra and Rogaine, very marketed, of course, to men because it is men's problems. And I love that they hit on that so quickly. Like, that is one of the first complaints. It's like, these are the things that are being marketed to us. And they are getting kind of tired of that stuff. And it's that whole thing of like, you are not good enough. You need to get more hair on your head and you need to have a hard cock. And so we are going to sell you all of these things. Well, speaking of Bob Dole died recently and I was going through his obits, trying to see if anyone mentioned in the obits that he was a Viagra salesman. Cause I remember the ads where it was, it was him in the Viagra ads. And so I'm I'm trying to remember, though. I mean, it must have been just around this period. It must have been right after the time I got out of high school. I got out of high school in 96, where they actually started to advertise medicine on TV. You know, I mean, you would have, you know, an aspirin ad or something like that. But I mean, like literal prescription pharmaceuticals. And now it's just so ubiquitous that we see them all the time. Even like I, I, I go on YouTube to look at something and they throw some ad up at me and I'm like, I don't have Crohn's disease. Nothing against people who got Crohn's disease, but why are you marketing this to me? Have I talked about Crohn's disease recently? Did I do a search on it? Is that why this is coming up in my returns? Yeah. That, that's one of those things that is endlessly fascinating to me is the kind of ads that I get shown. I do not understand where some of them come from, and yet clearly they are related to something I did. I called someone an old crone. Now, all of a sudden... <laughs> Well, my favorite on YouTube, on Facebook used to be I used to get ads for feminine hygiene products, maybe because I got Mary in the last name. Who knows? And the other one was I used to get ads for Orthodox Jewish dating. All right. We're going to take a break and play a trio of interviews. First up, we're going to hear from the author of Fight Club, Chuck Palahniuk. Then we'll hear from producer Ross Bell. And last but not least, we'll hear from screenwriter Jim Uls. And we'll be back with those right after these brief messages. Sick of those trivia podcasts that you don't even understand how to operate and they just have too many levers and buttons? There's got to be a better way. Now there is, with Good Job Brain, an offbeat quiz show and trivia podcast that makes learning new things easy and fun. I just learned that artificial vanilla flavoring sometimes comes from the anal glands of a beaver, and now I can never shake that mental image. Thanks, Good Job Brain. Good Job Brain is available for the low price of just four easy payments of free. It's a podcast. Good Job Brain is part of Airwave Media and available on all podcast apps. Operators are standing by. 
This is an American Red Cross blood donation alert. We are currently facing a severe blood shortage during this coronavirus outbreak. Healthy blood and platelet donors are asked to make an appointment to give now. Donating blood is safe and can help save lives. Cancer patients, accident victims, and so many others continue to need life-saving transfusions. So please schedule your appointment now by visiting redcrossblood.org or calling 1-800-RED-CROSS. You can make a difference. Hey, it's Rob St. Mary from the Projection Booth, and I want to tell you about a humble guy you might have heard of before. He's my podcast partner. His name's Mike White, and he's got a new book out. It's called Cinema Detours, and I just want to tell you that the guy is so humble that he won't even talk about it on the show. He won't even ask you to go to our website, projection-booth.com, or go over to amazon.com and pick up either the paper version or, you know, the ones and zeros, the digital for your Kindle. He won't ask you to do that. That's how humble he is. But I think you need to do it. You want to know why? Because it's a great read, and especially with the movies that you've seen before, it's kind of like chatting with an old friend and having a good laugh. And as for the movies that you haven't seen, well, i got to throw a beat down on Mr. White because he's now expanded my list probably another hundred films that I need to see. It's Cinema Detours. You can get it at Amazon.com, either in paper form or for your Kindle. And, of course, you can always get more information about this book and the Projection Booth podcast at Projection-Booth.com. It's Cinema Detours. I'm Chris Cooling from Forgotten TV, and you're listening to The Projection Booth, the ultimate movie podcast. Welcome to the interview portion of the show. First up, we're going to hear from author Chuck Polinick all about Fight Club and a little bit more. I am so curious about your background in journalism. How does that influence the way that you write, or did it influence the way that you write? You know, I, I definitely think it influenced the way I write in a couple ways at least. One is that I tend to source material and develop material by uh, listening to people. And when I hear a concept that is repeated between a lot of different parties, I realize that it's something worth pursuing. And so I start taking that concept to even more people and getting their experience around, say, never being in a fight or only being in one fight. And so in that journalistic way, I find ideas and I develop ideas and in a, a kind of structural way in journalism, you're taught to write according to the inverted pyramid where the most important thing has to be in the first paragraph. And the second most important thing has to be in the second paragraph even so that your editor can just lop the article off to length, whatever fits the news hole that day. And maybe in a third way, in journalism, you write to have your work thrown away. So nothing is ever really that really super special baby of yours because you know it's only got a shelf life of a few hours. And so in journalism, you are constantly churning the work out and knowing that it's of no value whatsoever tomorrow. And so that, that made me a lot less attached to producing the great American novel. When did you give up the journalism career? I kind of haven't in so many ways now. I still do articles for magazines. Uh, there's just fewer glossy magazines to write for, but I still do that work. I think I read that you actually would go to support groups or even listen to phone sex lines so you could hear people's stories and hear similarities and, and kind of get ideas from those. And I'm very curious, when did you first start doing that, especially when it comes to the support group stuff? It really started 
as as a kind of a germ of the idea for Fight Club. In my very early 20s, I became aware of my mortality. And I was like a lot of people do in their early 20s. You have a few friends or you have a couple friends actually die. And so uh, I was just very you know, nervous and upset about, you know, whether or not I could handle dying. And part of getting used to that was to do volunteer work in a hospice. And the only thing I could do is trans- transport people. So I was taking a lot of seriously ill, dying people to support groups and having to sit through the group with them so I could take them back to the hospice. And the, the problem is that people in the groups would think that I was suffering from whatever the rest of them were suffering from, and they would interact with me as if I was also dying of their disease. And there was no discreet way to tell them that I wasn't. So I started writing that aspect of Fight Club where where the guy accepts all of the support, all this nurturing, because people think that he's dying. I, I started writing that because of the awkward situation uh, in the hospice where I was volunteering. How did that eventually change into what we know as Fight Club today? Well, Fight Club started as what I thought would be a collection of short stories. It was a short story about a guy who found caring and nurturing uh, in support groups without having to reciprocate. Uh, there was a short story about waiters who contaminated food. There was a, a short story that literally became Chapter 6 about this club where you could go to fight. And all of these short stories were just supposed to be part of a collection that I hope to someday publish. Uh, at the time, there was a, a big push for short story collections in the early to mid-90s. And then eventually, I realized that so many of the characters in these stories seemed to be the same small group of people. And so it took very little to, to kind of put the stories together and to look for the holes and then to write those chapters. And so I think that's why so many scenes kind of stand alone, like the Raymond K. Hassel human sacrifice scene, because they, they were originally written as standalone short stories. And I think that that's kind of what gives the book a kind of richness is that so many of those things were episodic. And there wasn't a kind of constant linear thrust through the plot, that there were these kind of tangents and these little cul-de-sacs, some of which never really went anywhere. But they, they gave the book a real richness that it would not have had if I just sat down and wrote the whole thing from A to Z. Now, I've read different things as far as where Fight Club was in the chronology of your writing. Can you tell me a little bit as far as like when Invisible Monsters and, and Survivor and um, I know you had an unpublished novel. You said it was like 700 pages, very Stephen King-esque. Like what was that chronology? I had started writing in, I think it was about 1989. I started writing this enormous kind of horror novel. That there was the giant 800 page piece of crap that I think everybody writes the first, you know, first time out. The only thing I had salvaged from that giant mess was Marla's speech about the condom being the class slipper of a generation. You put it on, you dance all night with a stranger and you throw it away. The condom, not the stranger. That was lifted from that first book. And there's also a scene in my book, Snuff where a kid is trying to copulate with a blow-up sex doll, and he realizes the doll has a leak and it's losing air, 
And so it becomes this, this race to see if he can complete the axe before the doll loses all of its air and goes completely flat. And his mother walks in at the end and he stands up and he has this flat, lush tone, this pink ghost hanging off of his erection. That's the scene that got me kicked out of workshop because people no longer felt safe around me. Oh my God. And I think around that point, I was probably 29 or 30 years old. But after that, I joined a workshop that taught minimalist writing, which is just so much more impactful and so less traditional, so less mainstream. It really clicked for me. It was really the style I had been looking for. And I started writing eventually the short stories that became Fight Club. But the first complete work I did was a draft of Invisible Monsters, which was just a blast to write. It was so much fun. But it got a lot of attention. It got me a trip to New York. It got me an agent. But ultimately, no one because it just seemed like the impossible thing to market. And forgive me, have you heard me tell David Fincher's story about marketing Fight Club? Fincher has this great story. He says after they screened Fight Club to all the executives of 20th Century Fox, the head of marketing came, came to David and said, thank you, very sardonically. He says, uh, you have given me an impossible job to do. You have just laid in my lap the most unmarketable movie in history, a movie that has got so much blood in it that no woman is going to want to see it, and it's got so much male nudity in it that no man is ever going to want to see it. You have given me the impossible movie to market. Thank you. And that's kind of the situation over my early drafts of Invisible Monsters, is that publishers loved to read them, but they didn't want to have to sell them because it was so radically unlike anything in the market. And there really wasn't a bookshelf waiting for it. Monsters didn't sell, despite all the positive attention. And it's really only then that I kind of really gave up. I wrote with a kind of maniacal rage, but also glee that uh, gave me Fight Club. Did you also write Survivor before Fight Club was published? No, no. Survivor was way down the road. And I was uh, really in crisis because... Fight Club sold so fast. It sold three days after I sent it to my agent. And then the uh, overseas rights sold so fast and the movie rights sold so fast that I, I really was panicked, wondering how I was going to follow it up. And so Survivor was really a tough one for me to, uh, you know, I had to really regroup completely. I wasn't expecting Fight Club to sell. And so I had no idea where to go next. What was that like for you, having your first book sell and especially having the movie rights sell so fast? It was kind of anticlimactic. I talked to Michael Chabon once after he won the Pulitzer Prize for Cavalier and Clay, and he said that people were always coming up to him and saying, oh, geez, what are you going to do with the money? What are you going to do with the award money for the, the, the Pulitzer? And he said, you know, I, I'm going to make a house payment. The award money is $1,600. So it was so anticlimactic that it was a moment of euphoria that I wish I could put in a bottle and pour in every drink for the rest of my life. But beyond that, it really it didn't change my life in the smallest because I still had my full-time job and I still had my lousy house and I still had my friends. So there really wasn't any you know lasting 
you know, significant change. I'm curious. There have been so many times that a book will sell for the movie rights or even a screenplay, and then it just languishes there forever. What was the next step for you once it sold? I mean, was that just out of your hands? And then next thing you get a call like, hey, this movie's made, or what was that history like? In retrospect, it seems very fast. But if I sit down and I really look at it, there was a lot of hemming and hawing. And one of the first advocates was uh, a producer who was associated with Fox uh, 2000. And his name is Ross Bell. He's an Australian man who now teaches film in Australia. But Ross had the bright idea that to attach talent to it, he wanted to hire actors. And they would do a kind of recorded teleplay that would synopsize the book. And that these would be placed on, of all things, cassette tapes, because this was still 1995, and that ex- executives and talent would be given these cassette tapes, basically these radio plays of Fight Club, and they could listen to them in their cars while they were stuck in traffic. So Ross was getting these produced at the same time that a very divergent groups like David Fincher were reading the book and uh, putting together the talent in their way to make it work. David tells me that I believe at the time Brad Pitt was making Meet Joe Black. And so he was going out to, uh, he said Newport, Rhode Island, where all the big mansions are. And that one evening he came back into New York City and Fincher met him with a copy of Fight Club and sat him down and over the course of almost the entire night told him the entire story or maybe even read him the entire story. And that's how uh, Fincher got Brad Pitt on board. And eventually, Fincher took the projects to Fox. And then one evening, David Fincher called me at home in my lousy old house. And we talked about who to cast for Marla. And then the whole thing started to seem real. You were talking about the recordings that were going around on cassette tapes. Can you remember any of the people that were involved with that other than uh, Ross Bell? No, I can't. You know, Ross is the one that brought in Jim Ools as a screenwriter. Ross had seen some of Jim's work. Jim had been unproduced at that point. Ross did bring in Jim, and I think at that point, Jim might have even written that sort of Reader's Digest uh, abbreviated version of Fight Club. Were you asked to contribute to the film at all? Did you work with Mr. Ools? Oh, no. You know, I had a couple telephone calls with Jim, but my rule of thumb is always that, uh, to a large extent, when you write a book and you hope it's going to become a film, you are putting a baby in a basket on someone else's doorstep. And unless that person sees themselves in this baby, sees this baby as an extension of themselves, they are not going to adopt this baby and go through the enormous ordeal that it's going to take to make this baby into a film. So I knew that if I kind of held on to it too tightly and didn't allow other people to have their say about shaping it, uh, it was never going to mean enough to them for them to see it through. In a way, it all seemed very uh, ethereal because my editor had sat me down and said, of all the books that are published, about 2% of those books get optioned. And of that 2%, only 2% ever go into production as a film. So he said, as, as, as exciting as it seems, it is never going to happen. So he said, you can go through the motions, you can participate in this process, 
but never, ever set your heart on this thing actually taking place because it will not. And so it was exciting and interesting to meet these people, but I never really thought it would happen. So what was your reaction when you finally saw the film? Boy, I was uh, really confused and also uh, confused and uh, and kind of threatened because the film is a, the product of so many bright people. And the book is just uh, the product of me and the bright things I could overhear from people. So I thought, like, with The Graduate, the film would kind of completely eclipse the book and people would forget there ever was a book. So I really thought, you know, this is this is going to wipe me off the map. And at the, at the same time, I was confused seeing the plot drop the support group element. And I, I know that a film has two hours. A film really can't do what a book does in terms of length. But for me, the central transgression was the fact that this, this character had manipulated dying people emotionally. And so in the book, that character is exposed and is subjugated to those dying people. And those dying people get to uh, determine the fate of this of this liar. And the movie really couldn't go back there. The movie couldn't go back to the support groups. So I really felt that that the sort of emotional core, that's, you know, that sort of social contract core was incomplete in the film. You know, God bless. I wish they could do it all, but each medium has its own strength. Yeah, I guess that plays too directly into the ending and how the two endings are pretty darn different. I would wager that that is why the film did not completely eclipse the book and turn it into The Graduate. Films like Rosemary's Baby, where the film is so completely true and so completely excellent that people don't really read Rosemary's Baby. They don't read The Stepford Wives because those books went so perfectly into the film. But people still still buy and they still read Fight Club. And I think it's because the book and the movie aren't the same thing. I'm curious about your reaction to the fan reaction and when it comes to the way that the movie was adopted by the fans. I, I never want to forget this. I never want to forget how terrible it was when the film opened and it opened to such lackluster everything. And at one point, I saw the returns. And at the time, Double Jeopardy was the top box office movie. And it had been the top movie for 90 days, the entire summer, more or less, of 1999. And Fight Club opened against a Michelle Pfeiffer, Bruce Willis movie called The Story of Us. And Fight Club came in at number two with The Story of Us just right behind it. And when I called Ross Bell, this Australian producer, I said, so it doesn't look bad. It looks like it, you know, people are actually going to it. And Ross Bell just shout into the phone. He shouted, don't you understand? It's tanking. The movie is tanking and it's taking us with it. We'll never work again. And he hung up. And then I, I realized how terrible the situation was that people say that Fox sort of bungled the marketing, maybe because it had too much male nudity and too much blood, but it wasn't reaching the right audience. People didn't know what to expect. 
So the film was out of, it was out of first run theaters within 10 days, I think. And it kind of tanked the careers of a lot of people, uh, arguably, uh, including Bill Mechanic, who was the head of 20th Century Fox at the time, uh, because he wasn't the head of Fox for much longer. And Fox had sunk a lot of money in this movie. And I just don't want to forget what a gigantic train wreck those next few months were. Because no matter how awful things are in my life at any one point, I need to look back at October 1999 and remember just how awful that was. And then beyond that, you know, Fox rallied and they, they put the DVD together in a beautiful way and they put in so many great extras and they finally got the marketing right. And it wasn't really until the DVD came out and I believe became the top selling DVD for a long period of time. It wasn't until the DVD built the audience that people started to come back around and people like Roger Ebert, who had panned the film, came back around and actually gave it rave reviews a second time around as a DVD. So there was this enormous sort of recalibration, this kind of re-recognition of the film, you know, uh, geez, two, three years after it was released. So it, with the DVD, there was one thing, one nice sort of uh, marketing gimmick where they put the worst reviews on the packaging alongside the best reviews. Uh, and the worst reviews, they included Rex Reed saying, perhaps this movie will find its target audience in hell. By putting the worst reviews next to the best reviews, it finally, finally found its audience. Yeah, I remember Ebert calling it cheerfully fascistic. That must have stung a little bit. He also said this this line about uh, the movie sounds as if the author tripped over the Nietzsche display at Barnes & Noble or something like that. Some, But two years later, he was loving it. I've heard stories of women who, if they see that Fight Club is listed as a man's favorite book on their dating profile, Tinder, whatever, that they just, you know, swipe left. What are the reactions from female fans versus male fans to the book and to your work? The first time I ever read anything from the book at a public reading was that chapter six, the chapter that introduces the rules. My writing teacher had arranged for us to do this public reading in a bookstore. He asked me to read that chapter. I got to the bookstore, and it turned out to be a feminist-slash-lesbian bookstore. And I thought, I am just going to get creamed. They're going to hate this so much. And I go, and it's full of all these women, all these powerful women, and I just suck it up, and I read that chapter, and every single one of those women rushed forward and said, we love this. Is there one of these? Is there a fight club for women? We want to go to it. Please tell us this is real. I don't think it was just lesbian women re reacting to it. I think it was this idea of kind of exploring this unexplored part of yourself that people responded to. Because especially women have this aversion to conflict, but if they can explore conflict in a very structured, very completely consensual way, then they can finally sort of come to terms but also feel safer in the presence of conflict. And so it's all of these conflict-adverse people who are attracted to Fight Club because it offers them a complete structure for engagement, all these rules, and it's completely consensual. So it's a very safe way of exploring conflict and violence, all these things. 
you know, I think that was the appeal, especially to women. If memory serves, though, there were also like the men's rights people, the Proud Boys. They also embraced the book and the film as well. And the Antifa was running punch of fascist fight club training camps. So Antifa embraced the book, which is something we love. I am now dealing with fathers who brought their babies to me at book events years ago. And the babies are now adults having babies. And they're introducing the book to their sons or to their daughters. And I have met so many fathers and daughters and so many fathers and sons and so many mothers and sons who have bonded over the book. The other dark, horrible thing that happened in 1999 was my father was murdered late May of 1999. And my father and I always had the most tenuous walking on eggshells relationship. But in the years between when Fight Club was published and his death, we finally had a common ground. And he thought that I was writing about his father. He read it as the son. And we finally had this kind of this narrative, this language that we could talk about our relationship. And in the last three years of his life, that book gave us, uh, gave us a new connection. And thank God that happened because suddenly in May he was gone. If it did nothing else, it gave my father and I uh, a, a connection, a relatedness that we otherwise would never have had. When did you decide that you wanted to go back to the story and do Fight Club 2 and 3? I had a lot of friends in comics, and they were pushing me to do comics. I wanted to, rather than uh, try something entirely new, I wanted to, to do something from one of my existing stories. And with Fight Club, the book had been received so well, and the movie had been received so well, that... I didn't think either of them could get a sequel because the sequel would always be held up to either the book or the movie and would always be found lacking. But if the sequel is written in an entirely different medium, I thought it would have the strength of something that wasn't film and wasn't long prose. And so the, the graphic novel could do things ni neither of the previous iterations could do. So I thought that would be the strongest potential thing was to do a sequel as a graphic novel. And it's a blast because with comics, you were working with a whole team of people and you were working with them on a daily basis. For the first time in my career, I actually had co-workers and I enjoyed the entire process. Well, yeah, that must have been pretty different for you writing in that new comic book form versus you know, the essays and the novels that you've written in the past. It was, but you know, I really thrive on structure. I'm not one of these kind of loosey-goosey people. I am Mr. Autistic. I want rules. The first rule is, the second rule is, I want structure, I want order, I want ritual. I want all of these kind of, these guidelines that kind of, you know, tell me what not to do. And graphic novels, the print medium, are just nothing but rules. There's so many things you cannot do. There's so many things you have to do. And I love that kind of constriction. I love bondage. You can put that on my tombstone. Chuck loves bondage. Though so I like that you're playing with the medium, though. Like having the pills, having the rose petals, these kind of things that obscure the action and the dialogue, people's faces. I thought it was fantastic. Well, it was so fun because Fincher had blocked these sort of breaking the fourth wall, you know, sort of effects in the fight club. 
You know, we, we've got the penis popping up. We've got the, uh, the, the, the socket run, uh, socket run holes of the film moving in. We've got the film burning. Fincher had kind of established that, that precedent. And so I wanted to take that precedent to a different level and have the occluded dialogue, have the occluded gesture and th- these kind of seeming breaking of the fourth wall objects seem to lay on the page in a different photorealistic style because I wanted to have obstacles to people understanding the story. So often stories pander to people and they think, okay, uh, the stupidest person in the world has to be able to understand what's happening in the story. And I wanted to play against that and make it more and more difficult for the reader to fully understand what's happening on the page. How did Expedition come about? I rented an apartment in Madrid, and I think it was 2014, and I was going to live in Madrid for six months. I love Madrid. I can't speak a word of Spanish, and that is so helpful because I could sit in sidewalk cafes and I could write all day long and not be distracted by music or people's conversations. And one of the few books I could find in English in bookstores was an H.P. Lovecraft collection. And I also found a, a collection of Edgar Allan Poe. I kind of fell in love with that really elaborate language, especially uh, Lovecraft's tendency to invent words and to invent these kind of gothic places that he had never been to. And so I thought, why can't I write a Lovecraft kind of story? You know, Lovecraft slash Poe kind of story. Then that's what I wrote that summer in Madrid was me trying to be H.P. Lovecraft. How did the decision to put that out as an LP come about? <laughs> uh, the company just came to me and they said, we'd like to do these limited edition LPs that sell out within four or five seconds. Said, oh, it did also then, I believe, a LP of Brett Easton Ellis. I can't remember what story. They seem to have such a pedigree and they seem to have such success. And I really did want to support vinyl because vinyl seems like such a wonderful losing battle that uh, you can't help but want to side with the underdog. And so why not do vinyl? Well, speaking of underdogs, were those your dogs barking on that? (laughs) It might have been. I had two dogs at the time. They both passed away, but I couldn't say. Well, did you record it at home or how did you do it? I don't remember because I'm sure they hired an actor because I am absolutely lousy at reading my own stuff. I I thought it was your voice. You know, I would bet it's not, Uh, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't swear. It sounds like you recorded it in your living room and then like occasionally the dogs would bark. So I was like, okay, I thought it was very, very homey to hear what I thought was you reading the story. You know, and I don't have a turntable. So I, I think I still have a copy and I just never listened to it. That's the other thing is I really despise, uh, listening to the sound of my own voice or images of myself. Yeah. So it's just not a place that I really want to go. Doing longer reporting pieces, I would, uh, I would tape record the interviews and I would have to listen to the interviews to transcribe them and I would have to listen to myself. So you do kind of develop a thicker skin. I know Choke has been made into a feature film. What other of your works have been optioned, and is there any hope for other things on the horizon? 
almost everything has been optioned at one point or another. And at this point, the most promising things look like Survivor, which is currently optioned by Francis Lawrence. Francis Lawrence has had the option on Survivor before, and that since he had the option in the past, he made uh, Constantine and he made the Hunger Games movies, and now he's got a lot more clout. So now he's got the option again, and I believe he's developing it for a limited series for for streaming. Another company, I believe it's Fabricant Entertainment, has been developing Invisible Monsters for a couple of years. At the point of the lockdown, they were casting it, and they had fantastic casting that I cannot talk about. But it looks like Invisible Monsters would be a streaming series as well in the near future. But I really can't talk about it. I don't want to steal anybody's thunder. You know, Ranch is also optioned for a film. I think that might be it, but I wouldn't be surprised if there was some still option that I wasn't aware of. Now, I had read forever ago, well, I can tell you it was just about 20 years ago, that Survivor was going to be coming out, but then it got derailed because of September 11th. Right, and Gwyneth Paltrow's brother, Jake, had written what I understand was a fantastic first draft of a screenplay, and Fox had the option, and then September 11th happened, uh, and it wasn't until Francis Lawrence optioned it some years after that. I think at one point, even the Wachowski brothers, uh, uh, now the Wachowski sisters, they had the option on it for a while. Like with One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's one of these options that just kind of goes on and off for a long time. Well, I hope every time they have to reoption it, you get a little in the uh, the bank account. I do, but my heart breaks a little bit when people invest their time and their money and they're not able to make a project work. So how did the uh, pandemic affect you? I had three big books out last year. And the first one, the writing book, I, I got to tour for it. And it was terrific. And the book has done well. And the book got the best reviews of probably anything I've ever written in my life. So the writing book was a hit. And then Fight Club 3, which I did not realize was going to have a, almost a $50 price point because I wanted to put as much in that book as possible. And I ended up making the book so fat and so expensive that at least as a hardcover, I think I kind of, I, I hurt the sales. And at the same time, I wasn't able to tour because that was the height of, of the lockdown. The book has recouped all of its production costs, but I don't really think it's going to be a big force until I can go out on the road with it or until it goes to paperback. And Fight Club 3 was supposed to be you know, the next big thing was the lockdown. And then last fall, I had a big thriller, uh, The Invention of Sound, that goes paperback this fall. And it got fantastic reviews, and it got me on uh, every gigantic podcast there is. And people really loved that book, but I didn't get to tour with it. And touring has become a big part of my creative process. It's a, it's a chance to to test new material on audiences and see if they engage with it. And then later when I meet people to hear their version of what I've just told as a story to see if people have their own personal version that can help me to develop and flesh out the idea. So it's kind of like putting a small fish on my hook and looking for it to attract a bigger and a bigger and a bigger fish. And if I can't tour, I don't get to do that fishing. So tour leaves without touring 
I'm kind of finding myself more and more kind of depleted. So I can't wait to go back out. You are so the opposite of what I think a lot of people have in their heads as far as writers like that Kilgore trout. I'm in my you know, shabby little shack. Don't talk to me. I will just write this as opposed to going out and talking with people and getting ideas and feeding off of that energy. You know, I think that's the dirty little secret of productive writers is they are more related to studs turkle. They are this thing that goes out into the world and gathers ideas. And in a way, when they become too recognized, that's what destroys their career. You know, Steinbeck was a reporter and Steinbeck would go to parties and Steinbeck would eavesdrop on people because they didn't know he was Steinbeck. And then he won the Pulitzer for Greats of Wrath. And so suddenly he was the center of attention and people wouldn't tell him their secrets. And he couldn't eavesdrop and he couldn't harvest ideas the way he used to. And that was kind of the beginning of the end for Steinbeck. So that kind of big institutionalized recognition can destroy writers like that. Right now, I love the idea that I'm kind of publicly perceived of as this very corrupt, based, kind of despicable, unlikable, toxically male thing, because it is my perceived corruption that allows other people the license to approach me and to express their own questionable behavior. I'm considered a a kind of a person that's not going to judge them. And so people will tell me their secrets still. And so I don't have to lurk at the edge of a party. People will just bring their secrets to me and lay them in front of me uh, because I'm not perceived of as, as this kind of pretentious thing. I've got one student who is a firefighter. And last week we were at a bar after class and he said there's this paradigm in civil service. Everyone says cops beat, firefighters cheat. He was glorious. He was so smart. I just made him talk it out. And the idea is that because of personality types, very authoritarian guys go into police work and they tend to be people who want to create this ultimate order. And so they tend to be guys who physically abuse their wives, cops beat. And firefighters tend to be guys who go out and they look for the damaged person. They can identify the damaged person from a mile away. And so they can find that person who is emotionally or chemically damaged in some way and and who can be sort of saved or at least manipulated. So firefighters cheat. And he says that it is almost a universal paradigm. Cops beat, firefighters cheat. I never thought of it, but it was this kind of, you know, this well-known secret that's the kind of thing that I, I look for in the world. Mr. Polinick, thank you so much for your time. This has been so great talking with you. Hey, thank you very much, Mr. White. Up next, we're going to hear from producer Ross Bell. Can you tell me a little bit about how you got into the business? <laughs> By mistake. Um, after university, as an Australian, most Australians, if they can afford it, leave the country. So for two years, I backpacked around Europe after my economics degree at Sydney University. Now, this is important for the ending of the film of Fight Club. At university, I studied political economics. 
And my thesis for my honours year was on global banking and how they were redlining countries and refusing to give them loans. It was about how they were determining which countries actually could prosper based on their profitability. And there was this one line that always stuck with me, that there is more debt than there is money in the world. And if all the debtor nations at the time got together and formed a cartel and said, we're not going to pay, it would be the end of civilization, the end of capitalism. I'm going to misquote this, but maybe you can get the correct quote, which is, if you owe your bank $100, you're in trouble. If you owe your bank $100 million, they're in trouble. So this idea that you can topple the system if everyone in debt said, no, we're not going to pay. But anyhow, that was my thesis at university. And then I went and had a job interview with Lloyds Bank International, and I was going to become this banker based on this thesis, which was really a critique of capitalism. I was more interested in meeting Germans who were going to Paris to see an exhibit of an Italian artist and this crossroads of ideas. So when I got back to Australia, I knew I wanted to work in the dissemination of new ideas. Whatever that took, I put on a cabaret with some friends and we invested our own money. We produced it ourselves. We made enough money back to break even, but I had to perform it each night and I'm not a performer. And I thought this is crazy, you know, to do this in front of 60 to 100 people a night. If we filmed it, it could be in a canister and shown around the world for the rest of time. So movie making, you are creating the culture. This is here forever. I wrote to every producer in Australia, 100 letters, only two people replied. And I got my first job as a runner on, on a film. And I thought, okay, I'll work my way up through the production ranks. But that's not where the ideas are. You get a job in production because someone else has got the idea up and running and got it financed, right? One of the films I worked on with Karen Allen, of all people, from Raiders of the Lost Ark, she was doing a film in Australia. The trailer was being cut by an American who said, you're being wasted here, come to LA. And that was in 1989. I came to LA thinking, I'll just stay for a couple of weeks, look around. I never thought I was leaving Australia to go to Hollywood. To get some experience, I was interning for Roger Corman. Now, Roger Corman back in the day was, you know, there was a straight-to-video market. If Jaws came out, he did Piranha. He would sort of take whatever was popular and do his cheaper version of it. The man never lost money on any of his films. And I was in his office in Brentwood, would work late and used to sleep in the office. And he came in one morning and there I am asleep on his couch because his was the only office that had a full couch. Nobody else had a couch. And he said, who the fuck are you? I said, oh, I'm Ross Grayson Bell. I work here and you don't pay me. He said, okay, that'd be right. Uh, you better get up, go wash your face. So I get out of the office thinking I'm busted. And I come back in and he said, I want you to do a scene-by-scene -scene breakdown of Lethal Weapon, which had just come out on video, and tell me why this film worked. So I did that overnight, went back in the next day. He said, great, I want a facsimile of this story. Come up with a, a one-pager, you know, a, an idea for it overnight. I was in the office and he was on the video call with the distribution company, RCA Columbia, which he does all these videos. And because of my thesis... I knew how to catch someone's attention in three sentences. So the first page of this two-page document was just three sentences. That's all he read to them to RCA Club, and they said, we'll buy it. So he turned to me and said, I'll pay you $3,000 to write me a screenplay based on this one page of the two pages that you did, and you've got two weeks. 
it took me four weeks and it was in production in Peru about four months later. And I was a produced screenwriter within, you know, seven months of being in LA and I never went back to Australia. These opportunities never happen outside. It's such a factory here. And I love Australia, don't get me wrong, but it's a subsidized, the government subsidized the film industry. It's much more of a sheltered workshop. We're here, it's people throwing out ideas, ripping, not ripping each other off, but, you know, it's a real market-driven rather than a culture-driven. Australia is often culture-driven, as it should be, maybe. After you're a published screenwriter, what happens then? That was a 3000 one-time payment. I'm still not making any money. So I was being, I interviewed around and got a job as an assistant to Tracy Barone, who was the vice president of creative affairs for Ray Stark's company. Ray Stark made Funny Girl, The Way We Were, Steel Magnolias, The Secret of My Success. I mean, legendary producer. So I went from Roger Corman at one end of the scale to the absolute opposite. And that was an amazing time because, you know, I never realized this, but on every call in Hollywood, there are at least four other people listening. So I was on calls with Spielberg, who, not that I was talking, I was taking notes um, because he was going to direct The Curious Case of Benjamin Button. So Ray Stark had that before it went to David Fincher. Barbara Streisand was going to do a, a project. So I'm in the room or on a call with the top top players in the in the business. And at the time, Ray had his office in Burbank on the Warner Brothers lot. And I had my own parking space with my name next to Richard Gere and Sally Field. And here's this little Australian going, what's just happened? What has just happened? And that's the great thing about Hollywood. Even though you're an underling and you're at the very bottom, you are exposed to so much. Reading scripts, you know, reading two, three scripts a day on calls with these people, uh, just hearing how the business works. And as we all know, it's based on relationships and seeing Ray work his relationships completely, you know, changed everything for me. And then Ray brought in a man to run his production, Josh Donnan, Joshua Donnan. And Josh is the son of Stanley Donnan, the director, and was a big executive at Universal. And Josh and I really hit it off. And I think Tracy had moved on then. So I'd moved up to a director of development. And then when Josh left working for Ray to set his own company up, I went with him and for the next year lived off my credit cards. Now, this is also plays into the end of Fight Club. I was $50,000 in debt. I wasn't making any money. Josh was off making The Quick and the Dead with Sam Raimi directing, and I was holding down the office, getting new scripts. And ultimately, you know, Josh went back to being an agent. This was just when Fight Club had come in. So we were on the Fox lot then because Josh was making a film called The Great White Hype for Fox with Reggie Hudland directing. The manuscript, Laura, Laura Ziskin had the manuscripts for Fight Club unpublished. So it had come from Ray... Raymond Bongiovanni, the late Ray, Ray Bongiovanni, who was Fox's talent uh, book scout in New York. So he found the book, he, the manuscript. He sent it to Laura. Laura had it read by one of her readers that said, do not make this film. It is unconventional. It's going to make people squirm. No, no, no. And Laura didn't know what to do. So she was sending it out to different producers, including Art Linson. And I think Lawrence Bender, they all passed on it. 
And so it was sent to Josh and I read it in one sitting. And I remember loving it. And then it gets really dark in the middle. They start burning each other with cigarettes. And I was getting a little anxious thinking, oh, this is uncomfortable. And then the reveal happens that you realize they're the same character. It was like the floor fell out from underneath me. And I fell into a trap door where I understood the world in a whole new way. And Mike, it was like a physiological change came over me. I could feel this rush coming up. And I was, we've got to make this, we've got to make this, we've got to make this. Nobody listened, right? Because yeah, 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 it's it's dark, it's seditious. No, no, no. So during this time, I always thought to get everyone who can say yes in the room together, because you know, it's a like Chinese whispers in a way. There are so many people in the chain that the passion and enthusiasm for anything can get lost. So I thought, imagine if everybody was in the room at the same time and heard the same thing and the same laughter. I thought, right, we'll do a reading of the book. And I got a group of four unknown actors who to this day I credit with the success of what happened. And we did a read-through. The first read-through was six hours long. Ridiculous. (laughs) We started editing. I started editing, rearranging stuff in the book, cutting and pasting, turning monologue into dialogue, And what was interesting is also I'd done a lot of work with um, the hero's journey, the 12 stages of the hero's journey. And I was able to map out, and this is what's so interesting, everyone thinks it's a groundbreaking, seditious film, and it is, but structurally it is laid out as the hero's journey. And that helped me rearrange the book into a linear fashion. And what I love about these four actors was they would go off on weekends and workshop stuff together and come back with ideas for cuts. So eventually after about three months, now anybody could have optioned the book during this time. After three months, we got it down to 50 minutes. I then rented sound recording equipment on my credit cards. I'm now at $55,000 in debt. We did this read through, taped it, but it wasn't as good a performance as the rehearsal the day before. So I thought, oh fuck, that's a waste of money through the tape in a bottom drawer. And a week later, I said, that's crazy. I've done it. And I sent it to Laura Ziskin. She was driving to Montecito on the freeway, which is about a 50-minute drive. The tape was 50 minutes. She called me the next day and said, I'm making this film. Now, what I had done, like any good producer, is sort of take away the risk for them. Finally, she got what the story was. And when you look at Chuck's book, it's actually a collection of short stories. It doesn't form of full narrative. Now, what was brilliant about all that working with the actors is that Jim Alls, who the studio had no clue they wanted for it, uh, to write it, he was in the room with me. He was so passionate about it. He took the risk. There was no guarantee that he would ever get the job. But so he, he was in there. We knew what line was on what page of the book. We were so involved in it. Because I think Laura Ziskin originally wanted Buck Henry, who did The Graduate, to write it. My argument was, yes, he spoke to that generation. This I'm not being ageist, or maybe I am, but this is a new generation. We need a new voice. Now, at the same time as we were doing the editing and the putting together of the tape, I was shortlisting directors. And there were four that I wanted, Brian Singer, Danny Boyle, Peter Jackson, and David Fincher. Now, Josh, this was before he'd gone back to being an agent, 
before he was at Ray Stark, he was an executive at Universal. And even though David Fincher was in the wilderness after Alien 3, Josh knew that he was a talented director and had kept a relationship going. Josh then was David's agent, manager. They produced House of Cards together. So it's been an ongoing relationship because Josh was there when nobody was there for David Fincher. And Josh said, look, I haven't read this, but you've got to pay attention. At the same time as Josh was doing that with David, I was on the phone with Doug Friedman, his assistant, and we were faxing each other back some of the best scenes from the book. We were laughing so much. We had so, we were so into it that David got on the phone and said, what are you up to? And we said, this is the book. You have to read it. I'd flown to Wellington in New Zealand to meet Peter Jackson. And when Fincher signed on and it was announced in the trades, Peter Jackson sent me a note saying, I wish I'd read it sooner. And Brian Singer never read it and it didn't go much further with Danny Boyle. So it was kind of a confluence of events. And then with Fincher on board, the studio felt a lot more secure. The producer doesn't make the movie really. It is the director and the director's going to get the cast and they were hoping he would get Brad. And it took a few tries, but he did get Brad. But they said, you know, if David Fincher signs off on Jim Ulls, we'll go with Jim Ulls. So David did sign off on it, thinking that it would take us five writers, 20 drafts to get this right. And David was off in San Francisco making the game and Jim handed in the first draft and it was a mess. We tried it without a voiceover. We tried a few things. Now, no agent wants their client writing drafts for free. But again, Jim was so passionate. I said, look, let's just work on the ending. Because in the book, they blow up the natural history. They blow up a building, the Parker Morris building, to fall onto the Natural History Museum to destroy civilization symbolically. I said, well, that's ridiculous. Who cares if a museum gets crushed under a falling building? I said, what is something that would be the destruction of the civilization, but also make people happy? And I said, imagine if you didn't have to pay off your debts. (laughs) So (laughs) tying these all back. And there was a scene we'd written where the buildings are blowing up and all the cars stop, a bit like Network, uh, the film Network, and people look up at the buildings and flaming out of the buildings are all their credit card bills falling down on fire, right? And that would be the end of civilization. And what is interesting is when Chuck read, and the quote is somewhere online if you want to find it exactly, when he read the script, he wished he could have changed, gone back and changed the ending of his book, which was now being published, because we got it in a way that he hadn't yet. So by stringing it together that way, it actually made for a very powerful ending. And this might be one of the few times where I think the film, I'm not saying it's better than the book, but is absolutely complementary. They're the companion pieces in this fight against consumerism or this realignment of values. And I really credit that to Jim being in the room, those actors, and the work we did. By the time Fincher finished the game in San Francisco, I think it was a Saturday, he was flying back to LA and said, I'm sending you the script. And he was blown away. And everybody knew then we had a movie in one draft. Now, in reality, it was two, maybe three drafts because Jim had done the extra work. And then there was more writing I think Andy Kevin Walker did an uncredited polish rewrite. But I say this to anybody who's in film. 
It's the fact that a very small core group of people knew exactly what the movie was. I really believe that. Or knew what the story was. The way that the script captures the book, taking those little lines that you'll see towards the end and moving them towards the beginning and putting something from someone's mouth into another mouth, just to work so well. It really does. But still, there are some lines that Jim Alls came up with. I remember being at a, after the premiere, we used to go around on different nights to different uh, theatres to hear the audience reaction. You know, the voiceover of Ed Norton's character, and he was faking something, and he says, yeah, I'd like to thank the Academy. (laughs) And it was so in Chuck's voice, but that was Jim Alls. He came up with that line. And there are other ones like that. I don't know if synchronicity is the word, but somehow when creative like minds join forces, it's a very powerful thing. And there were differences of opinion. Believe me, David Fincher, he had some very different ideas to the movie because I think it's a love story. And he would roll his eyes when I'd say that. But there's still a line that survives in the film that says this is all about Marla Singer. And I think one of the challenges we face, you might disagree with me, is... The film at the end is not about her and the space monkeys. There's a middle point in the film, maybe two thirds of the way through, it actually slows down quite considerably. And I remember at the premiere, you know, you have 1,500 people in a theatre in Westwood and the energy was so, they were with us for the first hour and 50 minutes and then it sort of lagged. You could feel the air going out of the balloon. And even David said at the after party, you know, it's too long, isn't it? But here's the other thing, you know, I've been lecturing in screenwriting and we talk about the job of a screenwriter is to emotionally engage an audience. I now realise you can also intellectually engage them. There was a film called The Big Little Short, which wasn't emotional at all, but um, very intellectually engaging. And I think Fight Club is more intellectually engaging than emotionally engaging. I'm not sure. Did you find it emotionally Yeah, I definitely cared for these characters. And Marla is just so, she's such an enigma. And then once you start to peel away a little bit of her layers, then you're like, oh, there's actually a human being here that I should care about. Oh, that's good to hear. That's great. What I think is particularly interesting about Helena Bonham Carter's performance, it's only once you realize that she's dealing with this split personality and you don't know that. So if you go and watch the film a second time, you realize, how clever her performance is because there's differences with how she's dealing with these characters, which you don't notice when you don't know know the twist. I used to get people sending me screenshots of Facebook where it said it was, the topic was Fight Club and there are 13,000 people talking about this. (laughs) They were like, did they read the first and second rules? How much were you involved once the cameras start rolling? Not very involved at all. As the junior producer, you know, I'd never produced a movie and there was no way the studio would give me $75 million. And David had made Alien 3 for Fox, so they were wary. They were very wary. Seven was extraordinary. Everybody knew that. Seven meant he could deliver movie stars, which was what was important. So they brought in Art Linson, who had originally, you know, passed on the material and he was not very comfortable with an unproduced me, an unproduced producer having too much say and too many ideas. And then also Sion Chafin, who is Finch's life partner. She produces all his movies, The Nuts and Bolts. So a line producer, but a producer, absolutely. 
So with those two running the show, there wasn't much for me in that. And that partly that's a great disappointment, but the only reason the film exists is because of me. And I don't believe for a minute it would have happened without that singular focus and those actors and the, <laughs> the read-through. What we did was, yeah. And even Jim Ulls wasn't involved after a point. That's why I think it was Andy Kevin Walker that did anything they needed in terms of rewrites. But Jim still gets sole credit. It was an amazing experience. And I even to the point where Anita Bush, she was writing for The Hollywood Reporter at the time. She was a columnist. And she went after us in her column about how irresponsible we had been as makers. And I actually wrote a reply, which was published. But, you know, this idea that violent films create a violent culture. I said, okay. So, and she referenced Columbine, what had happened in Columbine, which I believe was 1999. And, you know, those damaged, traumatized kids who did that terrible thing. You know, they went after the chocks, uh, the jocks and the cheerleaders. Now, I'm generalizing a little here, but they felt so disenfranchised by a system that they went after those sports heroes first to shoot them. So there could be an argument that any film that venerates these kind of ideals to the disenfranchisement of others could also be to blame. You know, also her argument was, you know, maybe we should all have social codes to make our films fit these social codes and then we, were the, we could be the Soviet Union back when there was a Soviet Union. But that's not as important as this. And I really, truly believe this. For David Fincher and for us, it's like going to an AA meeting, which is so appropriate given the 12 steps in the film. And you go to the front of the room and you say, this is what it's like when I drink. This is the pain I have suffered. This is the ruin it has brought on me. So imagine a film, Fight Club, is the same. You have a group of filmmakers going to the front of the room, a darkened room, saying this is how the world is. And what happens is that the pressure gets let off. Because go back to an AA meeting, if there was ever an audience that was prone to drink again, it's that audience. So they don't go out and break their sober sobriety, and there are boundaries. I know there are some violent films that I can't even watch and don't seem to enhance my experience of life or add meaning to the world. But Fight Club, I honestly believe, was letting the pressure off. For the first time, guys, they felt, oh, somebody understands me. And there were, people didn't go and start fight clubs. There was no uptake in that kind of violence anyhow. To her credit, Anita Bush did publish my reply, going back to my original desire to work in the dissemination of new ideas. They're Chuck's ideas. We just amplified them in a, ve a venue, you know, a medium that could take, take it to all four corners of the globe. And what is really brilliant is I just saw the film recently. It hasn't aged at all. Visually, you know, nobody has a cell phone in it. The car they drive was even out of date when they drove it in 1990. 98 when they were making the film, but somehow the clothes, the, and I think that's true whether it was intentional on David's part, Finch's part, but that is his true genius. The film is completely as modern as anything you see today. The soundtrack, the uh, Dust Brothers. Out of curiosity, does that read through, that 50-minute read through, does that still exist? It does. The studio, we're going to use it 
as part. So to Bill Mechanic's credit, because Bill Mechanic, who was head of Big Fox, so Laura Ziskin is Fox 2000, Bill Mechanic, got a lot of flack. He'd had a bad run of films. I think there was a Brendan Fraser film called Monkey Bone that had bombed, and then there was Fight Club. Now, Murdoch was personally offended by Fight Club, as he should have been. <laughs> the film is about blowing up fat cats like Rupert Murdoch. And I believe, I don't know if this is true, maybe you can check with somebody, but there was a screening and one of Murdoch's sons was there, Lachlan, I think, and Tom Cruise. And there was the hope that these younger men would help dad see it a little more open-eyed, but of course it offended him. But to Bill Mechanic's credit, even though the film did not perform well commercially, I think it did 38 domestically in the US, uh, 39 million. When it came to do the DVD, he said, we've set a new cultural benchmark with this film. And he put a lot of money into the DVD release. And part of it was going to be the tape. But in buying the rights to the book, the studio hadn't bought the audio rights. So those were separate. So we couldn't use it. Now, having said that, I wouldn't even know it was a cassette. I don't know if we've got cassette players anymore. I mean, somebody could play it. It must be in a box somewhere in storage. I've got to go find it. It's not in storage here. I moved stuff back to Australia. At one point, I was going to move back to Australia. I'm back in LA now. And I've forgotten some of the actors. Paul Key was one of them. It was three guys and no, a gal. I've got to f- find their names again, the other three. That's really bad, right, that I don't know. Well, it was a few years ago. It was nearly 25 years ago. It's phenomenal. You know, one of the challenges was after that, I was known as that guy. So I got sent every other bleak, nihilistic script. And then the business was also changing. Fight Club would not be made today. Would not be made. Actually, no, Netflix would make it maybe, but not, not a feature film. And it was a big budget. You know, it was 75 million. And then I think 35 to advertise it. So you're at 110. It does 38, 39 domestically of only half of that goes back to the studio. And, you know, a film with so many words like that, it's very hard to translate into other languages. So we were luck, lucky and lucky to have Bill Mechanic and Laura Ziskin on our sides. So other than getting sent bleak manuscripts, did the film do something for you? Did it help open doors? Yes, it did. And I have done teaching work. I'm not actively producing now movies. It's too hard as a one-man operation. You've got to be a supply product. You've got to have a high turnover. Definitely open doors in terms of teaching. But the one thing it taught me was that, and I take nothing away from Jim Ulls when I say this, but I'd worked on a number of projects at other studios. The writer gets paid whether the movie happens or not. The producer doesn't. It really pushed me into my own writing career, and I went to London and I was writing for the BBC just because it's too hard to make a living as an independent producer. And I give this one example. I had a film that I'd set up. So after Fight Club, I had a first look deal with Lawrence Bender and we set up a project that Jamie Foxx had brought to me. It was a comedy based on a pitch. We set it up at New Line. At the time, producers got a development fee of 25,000, 50,000, 25 up front and 25 when the film goes into production or whether it's abandoned. So there was Lawrence Bender, me, Jamie was a producer and Jamie's manager. So that's four people sharing $12,500. It takes us three months to close the producer deal, four months to find a writer that everybody agrees to. The writer was Jim Kauf, who wrote Rush Hour. He has 12 weeks to write a script, another three months. 
the script is not what the studio is hoping for, they abandon the projects. If you set up four projects at studios at an independent, you're still not paying your mortgage. So it only works if you're in production or in TV or you're writing and getting paid. I'm happy to have done it and happy to be, uh, I still make film stories. For me, it's going to be a movie. So when did you get into teaching? That was in 2009. I was head of screenwriting at the National Film School in Australia. And then now I'm back here making films for a company that is uh, about sustainability. I just made a film with President Carter. So all those storytelling skills are still applicable. It's just in, in different ways now. And the new project I'm going on to, it's going to be screen content that will go across all platforms, you know, TikTok even. But it's definitely in, I'm much more interested in stories now about sustainability and environmental change, preservation. Because once you're out of Hollywood for a little while, you know, you're not current anymore. I have to ask, what is President Carter like? He's the real deal. And, you know, this is funny to say, he gives Christianity a good name because I've met many Christians who are just, but he walks the walk. He lives in the same house he lived in before he was president. If it's sold on the market today, I think it's $135,000. And it's in Plains, Georgia, where he physically built a clubhouse for the Boys and Girls Club of Georgia. He's just the real deal. Frail, but mentally still very sharp. Yeah, really a good man, really good. I don't know how much long. I mean, he's turning 97 on October 1st. As he says, a better ex-president than he ever was a president. But also there was the Carter Center where they used to go in and, you know, monitor elections. There's Habitat for Humanity. There's so much he's done. It'll be a sad day when he goes. But coming back to Fight Club, you know, there's the story of um, Brad Pitt wanting to play the Ed Norton role. And everybody looked at him just flabbergasted. It's like, you want to be the Ikea boy, the kind of ordinary guy? Okay, Brad, so who are you going to fantasize about being? Tom Cruise? You're at the pinnacle. There is no other guy you want to be. I did give it to Russell Crowe, the book. I knew him through, through Josh. So when Josh did The Quick and the Dead, Russell and I got to know each other a bit. And Russell's a very smooth operator. He remembers every person who might be in the chain to his success. And I'm not criticising that. And I was in Sydney and we were kicking a football around and I was talking about this project and he really wanted to do it. And Russell's a great actor, but somehow I think he thought he was Tyler Durden. <laughs> Brad was more like, oh, yeah, I can play this role. No, no. <laughs> Russell was Tyler Durden, or believes he was. So, And, again, the casting is uniquely right. I think Brad, the cool nonchalance with which he plays that part, he was at the top of his game and he could get pull it off. You know, this is what I love about him. At the premiere, he was with Jennifer Aniston at the time and everybody else had arrived and walked into the theatre, but all the fans were in the bleachers and he and her, they walked around the car and went over to them. And, you know, that whole thing is this is part of what you pay for, but when the lights are off, you don't come to my house, you don't paparazzi snap me. And I think that's fundamental ordinariness of him that he likes to cultivate or so that he doesn't lose his way is part of the appeal. He looks like a god, but he's just one of us too. You know, one of David Finch's assistants, Rachel, she was having a party at her rented house and Brad turned up, you know, so he's genuine. I really appreciate your time. This was such a pleasure talking with you. 
It's great. I love talking about Fight Club. <laughs> Even though we shouldn't, I do love it. And last but not least, we're going to hear from screenwriter Jim Ols. I'm very curious how you got your start in screenwriting. I started actually um, writing plays, getting some produced, and going to UCLA, where I blended disciplines of screenwriting and playwriting. They allowed it at the time. And that's, that's more or less how I crossed over to screenwriting. What were some of your early scripts like? Kind of a blend of absurd with realism, absurdist realism, something like that. Now, I heard that there was a, was it a spec script that got people pay attention to you and then eventually led to the Fight Club gig? Uh, yes, uh, Hard Hearts. It was uh, a sort of a unique combination of genres as well. It was a heavily character-driven, uh, neurotic relationship with a man and a woman who are a couple and they work together as bounty hunters. My title uh, mashup for it was Annie Hall meets Bonnie and Clyde. That kept getting uh, you know the right person's attention. You know, the someone and then someone else and someone else, and and uh, led to uh, the gig. So, how were you approached for Fight Club? I believe my agent and I started um, making contact with uh, the people who were controlling the rights at the time. But it all started because a friend sent it to the, it was not published, it was a manuscript. But it had a publisher, it just wasn't on the shelf yet. I'm not even sure if this was the final version that the editor had gone through yet or not. And the friend that sent it to me worked for a producer and said, every studio in town has passed on this. I just thought of you and you've got to read it. Is that a compliment? Yeah, no, it was, it was meant to be. And then, then I read it and I thought it, it would be such uh, a great gig to be paid to do an adaptation of this. I know that it's never going to be a, a film, never be made into a movie. It would be fun to be paid to work on it. I just kept insinuating the uh, hard heart script into the right people's hands. That was both with the producers and the studio, which was newly formed, called uh, Fox 2000. I don't know how many divisions of Fox there were at that time, but certainly the main Fox studio had passed on it, and like all, all the rest had. But there was interest at Fox 2000. The person that sent you the manuscript, was that Ross Bell? Uh, no, Ross Bell was the producer, one of the, the, the uh, producing, these two uh, producing partners that were on the project, and I met him after I had read it. And uh, he and Josh Donnan, who then wound up going to Agentine, they were f the first two producers on Fight Club. And I, uh, I started having more than one meeting with them and kept it, you know, sort of kept myself in the air, uh, so to speak. They finally, after a lot of uh, meetings, including with uh, David Fincher, uh, I was finally hired to write it. Then all of a sudden I was faced with the task of having to write a screenplay. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what David and I both did was go through and use a yellow marker to mark things that 
we thought had to be there because it was too much to do in one film. So we basically had marked, I mean, as I recall, the same things. We were in agreement about it. And then uh, it was a little bit, then, then he went off to make the game. I did the first draft. It was only Ross Bell by then as a producer. We talked about the possibility of whether we have narration or don't have narration. We were able to get that message to David. He got back to us that he thought we should definitely try it with narration and that it should be something that's not used just for exposition or just to give us information, but it should be sort of its own sardonic uh, character, which is pretty much how I saw it, too. Because <laughs> nobody likes to think that they're leaning on narration for anything. So I sort of made the approach to it fun. Luckily, I uh, managed to pull off a first draft that kept the project alive, which is the number one job of the first draft, <laughs> which was it was good. Uh, in fact, people were very complimentary about it, so uh, I was happy with that. Then there was a break for a while because David was going to be unavailable for a while, and not only shooting the game, but post-production on it and everything. Fox 2000 gave me another writing assignment in the meantime, and it was, a, it was an adaptation of a nonfiction book written as a scripted fictional biography of uh, the young Elvis Presley called Last Train to Memphis. That one got pretty close, uh, but anyway, we had to do that for a while, and then I came back to then Fisher was free again, and we went over the first draft and made notes on it, and we proceeded from there. How's that first draft differ from what we see today? I had not completely exploited nonlinear, like uh, to completely step outside of, uh, have the narration step outside of uh, a linear story, even though it was uh, acerbic and made commentary on things, sometimes uh, contradicting what was shown. David wanted to explore nonlinear, like the point where the narrator says, let me tell you a little bit about Tyler Durden. And that kind of thing, where you step out of the timeline, was the big change, as I recall, going into the second draft. And then changes became smaller and smaller. Generally, in adaptation, then, if you're striving to create the experience in the viewer that the reader got from reading the book, you... Uh, change things rather than just leave them exactly the same. Uh, a person would say, no, uh, the change version, they would point to and say, that's like the book. <laughs> it's just a strange how the transfer from one form to another really does require changes. I do remember using a lot of what was just uh, first-person narration and breaking it into dialogue scenes so that Tyler said a lot of what in the book was said by the narrator. Some scenes I created whole cloth. Some were put together out of the first-person narration, split up between the characters, plus new lines. So it was all uh, very much a hybrid. I listened to the commentary track yesterday, and I appreciated how uh, Chuck Palahniuk was complimenting you on giving things a, a better spin at times than some of the things that he even put together. Um, well, I was, yeah, one of the funny things was 
we would uh, we brought him down, and the first time we sat down with him, uh, it's real, I mean, it was like I think it was the only time we really had uh, an official full conversation with him. And I say official, I shouldn't say if it wasn't official because it's something David and I wanted to do, but it's not required. Uh, but we wanted to ask him about a lot of why did why did you do this and why did you do that, and he would say, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, if he didn't know, he'd say, I don't know. He was quite candid. Obviously, if he didn't know, he'd tell us. So there were certain things. Like, I uh, I remember that I particularly wanted the car scene, the car accident scene, which in the novel is just three of the space monkeys, as they're called, the Project Mason, and uh, the narrator. We call him Jack. He's never called by that name his real name anyway, in the film or the book. And Tyler wasn't in the car. And I thought, this is, uh, it just seems too important of a moment not to have Tyler actually driving the car and being the one who's going to cause the accident. And Chuck said, yeah, you're right. I like that idea. <laughs> some of it was like that. What were some of the biggest challenges you had adapting the, the book or putting the screenplay together? The, the two things were making it, flow forward in a way that was building the story was building on itself it's it was increasing uh the tension and the suspense and everything as it went forward and the other thing was um creating scenes creating full scenes that played out between the characters a lot of times needed to be done those were his main challenges so i know the film is kind of infamous for People just not understanding it. It went away. It wasn't supported by the studio that much. It really kind of found its new life when it hit DVD. So I'm curious then, did the movie help you open any doors and put you on the map? Oh, yeah, yeah. I worked continuously after that problem. I was still writing stuff that was probably a little too strange. So there were projects that didn't get made. But, um, but yeah, it, uh, it, it did. It did keep me uh, in work. Well, speaking of a project that didn't get made, can you tell me about Flickr? Because that is one of my absolute favorite books. As a book, it, it would have if you were going to try to literally, and you never, you never really do it literally the same. But if you're going to try to be closer to the book, you would do a mini series. It's a it's a long book, and it covers twenty years in the fiction of the book. When Darren Aronofsky and I met about it, we were both of the mind that it should be a thriller and have a thriller timeline, you know, taking place over a course of, you know, a matter of weeks or something, like a thriller would, not 20 years. My <laughs> joke I made to him at the time was uh, a character saying, hey, isn't that that guy I saw with a knife outside my window five years ago? Yeah, it is. But, I mean, the novel is written to be like a miniseries. You know, we wanted to make a thriller film, feature film, and it uh, it meant changing a lot of things structurally. And then I wanted to, because the novel has the time for the lead character to actually finish college, decide what he wants to do with his life, and become a film critic. We had to start him doing whatever he was doing, and I switched it to a preservationist, film preservationist, because it sort of gave him a different way than we usually see 
of going in as kind of a, a detective with uh, the lost films of Max Castle, finding things, you know, uh, in the actual celluloid. It seemed to be the interesting way to go with him, keeping Claire as a film critic, which she was in the uh, in the novel. And that, that worked out fine. But anyway, I think those are the, the biggest considerations we had in changing. What ended up happening with the project? It came down to being a, uh, a nose-to-nose horse race. Things came together on the fountain really fast all of a sudden. Then he got a little, I will always say this because he would say it, he got a little spooked by the Da Vinci Code with some similarities it had. You know, I could see it, but I thought it was unfortunate because it was the qualities that were similar were the things that could be changed, I think, with the least problem. It depends. It depends on how much you think the films of Max Castle and his involvement in a group that was medieval in origin and it having these dark secrets and being a branch of Catholicism. In the novel, it was the Cathars. We actually had them uh, have a fictional name, I think. But in any case, it had this gothic horror thing to it that was like the Da Vinci Code. Whereas um, if that cult could have been changed enough to be more like, you know, uh, the Heaven's Gate cult or something, (laughs) I don't know if you want everybody wearing tennis shoes, but something to get our mind away from that aspect. I I don't think that there's other aspects that are similar. I, I don't really know beyond that what happened. That's pretty much what I know. It's also possible that he could sense there was going to be a fight over budget that he didn't want to do. I'm guessing on that from just clues, but that's not definite. Can you tell me, is the Rima Williams project, The Destroyer, is that pretty much off the table at this point as well? I don't know, because it's uh, the rights situations. The situation has kept changing on that. I actually don't know where that is right now. I don't think Shane knows where, exactly where it is right now, or maybe he does know exactly, but it's so Byzantine to explain the problem he hasn't told me. <laughs> what are you working on these days? A pitch for a TV series with a production company that I, ha- that I have to come up with a title for it, even though it's based uh, on you know underlying material that the, the title of that is already being used in television. (laughs) It's an untitled project right now. And that and um, very strange adult animation series, which I'm not supposed to talk about what it's about right now. You know, should it get made? Like, you know, the the likelihood is looking good. Once you do see it and know about it, you'll see it's... uh, I was not making it up that it's strange, because it is quite strange. You have one on your CV called Sweet Talk, and I've been looking for that for a long time, but can't find it. Did that is that a real movie? <laughs> it's just so tough to find. Yeah, I don't know why that's there. They don't know that's that script. It uh, it was a play. I didn't write the play. I did the script sort of as an investor a long time ago, which was one way of saying. Write it for free, but it was 
But it's the same advantage you have with a spec, because I knew the novelist, and he was letting me do what I wanted with it and make whatever deal I can make with it. So I thought, well, it's, you know, it's like writing a spec, and I like the idea. It never actually got made. So I don't know why they have it on there. <laughs> you are listed as one of many writers on Jumper. Where do you fit into the story on that? With Jumper, there had been a version written by one of those writers, and everybody, I'm blanking not only on titles like The Fountain, but um, people's names. <laughs> well, I know credited, it was David Goyer. Right, right. So David wrote, I believe, the first draft without, I'm not sure if uh, if Doug Lyman was on it when David wrote the first version of it. It's based on a series of books, young adult books. I, I think they are about you know somebody who can self-teleport. There had been this, this exploration of an entire way to do a story that involved terrorists, and uh, you know it was it, it was just a different story. And when I was approached by Doug Wyman, it was to do it to do a different story, basically of it. Which involved the not only the people who were able to self teleport, but the people who were naturally born with the ability to hunt them, and that became the center point of the plot, which the movie still has. Somewhere when I, I think pre production had started, uh, Simon was producing the movie and was as very close to Doug. Doug just sort of dragged him and said, you, you know, uh, I want you to make this, the changes that I want made to the script. Or, so, uh, and I'm not 100% sure. I mean, I couldn't go over a list of what they are because then the studio cut 20 minutes from the film, <laughs> finished film. So I don't know what was taken out by which method, the uh, rewrite or the, or the uh, editing. <laughs> I had more developed for sure with the mother being a Harlequin, which is what we're, we were calling the hunters of self teleporters. His own mother is, has that ability. Uh, it's revealed in the script. It was cast with Diane Lane. So that's what made me suspect it must have shot more with her. But, uh, in the final film, it's, um, it's, Pared down to very little. And I don't know which way it happened. By some means, it was removed. That's a shame, because I, I really liked the film, and I always felt there should have been more. It was ripe for the next story. I didn't, I didn't think it would have been too long if it was 20 minutes longer. So I don't know how that came about. Uh, but Simon and I, you know, we remained friends. He was great. I mean, I... I, we had good interactions with each other. We've talked about a few scripts that uh, you've written that haven't come to fruition. What are some of the ones that you really wish would have you know, taken off or, or that you're still waiting to boil? I, I don't know what I would say I'm waiting to boil unless something happens with the Destroyer or something happens with Leviathan, which uh, is even more recent, or something happens with the television series uh, idea from another book by Chuck Palahniuk called Survivor, which I wrote the pilot, 
and came up with a, you know the seasonal outline. But it uh, it didn't go, and I think it it might all rest on a certain problem that was not really. I mean, it did have to be in there. It. I don't. I, in other words, I don't know how you could remove this from the story, which was the, uh, the act of suicide. Except for the fact that it was done for different reasons, for, you know, purposely to go to heaven to be with other members of this religious cult. I think it became a very hot button issue. There is too many places where that all connected up. Uh, you didn't see, I mean, obviously it was not watching it happen. That wasn't the thing. It was just the fact of its existence that had to be there. So just an unfortunate thing, I guess. But ones that I think, you know, they're past their possible boiling point. Well, one, you know, obviously was Flickr, particularly with, uh, at times it being almost certainly going to go. That, and that could be frustrating. And that happened with a couple of others. Uh, one was Last Train to Memphis, which I had told you about. And another one was uh, Trick Monkey, and it was about magicians. And uh, there was an onslaught of magician movies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there were. <laughs> sort of uh, wiped that out. Uh, <laughs> well, Mr. Ools, thank you so much for your time. This was fantastic. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It's great to be on here. All right, we are back and we are talking about Fight Club. And I did find it interesting. I listened to all of the commentaries on the Blu-ray, uh, which I had listened to way before, probably in the early 2000s, listened to all of those. But I was reminded of uh, what we're about to talk about at the very end of the author commentary, where it was Jim Oles and Chuck Palahniuk talking together. People are already talking about are you going to write a sequel to the book? And I've sworn I would never do that. I can't imagine something that would be less fun than writing a sequel to a book I've already written. Well, what would it be? <laughs> yeah. It would be somehow bringing Tyler back from the dead. And then what does Rob send me as soon as we start talking about doing this episode? Oh, have you read the sequels? Which I hadn't. I hadn't read those sequels, Rob. Well, before we talk about sequels, can we talk about a few small differences between the book and the film? Did you read the book? Did anyone else get to read the book? I've read the book several times, and I re-listened to it. There's two things um, that really stick out to me. I, I think the, the film is a pretty faithful adaptation. There's certain things, obviously, that are in the book that you're not going to get. I think the way that Tyler is introduced on the airplane works better than how he's introduced in the book. The nude beach? He meets him on a nude beach. Now, I don't really think that the narrator in in our film would be going to a nude beach. So that that to me seems a little further afield. But the other thing is, is that the ending of the book, I'm going to spoil the book, is from my understanding, the buildings don't blow up. They actually stop him before he does. He's much more fucked up. I think his tongue has been 
bitten out of his mouth. He's got a big fucking gnarly hole in his face. Like he's really messed up. He's so messed up that much like Clockwork Orange, which we'll be talking about, I'll be back to talk about in a couple of weeks, I guess. There's a last chapter. And the last chapter, I remember when I first read it, I thought, oh, he's dead. Because in the book, the first line of the last chapter is a line that I've heard many times at funerals. In my father's house, there are many mansions. And that's how it starts, which is John 14, 2. And it continues with, and if it were not so, I would not have told you I will go and prepare a place for you. So this is Jesus talking to the disciples and saying, look, you know, there's a place for you in heaven. I know this. I will go and prepare it for you. So what we find out is that actually I when I reread it, like I said, I didn't get a chance to read the whole book. I just kind of skipped around and, and I definitely wanted to reread the ending to talk about it is he's um, and, and this is why I thought he was dead, because he talks about God. He's like God behind his big walnut desk. So basically, I think he's in kind of like a state mental hospital for like the criminal where there was probably a trial. He was put on trial. They figured he was nuts. They sent him to the state hospital. And it's the psychiatrist who he's talking to that is God. Yeah, it's very much like Joker. But the kind of the last piece of it, and I find this in the film as well as is in the book, is that he understands that he's not that anymore. And he can't be that. And he's moving on. But he's still a hero. And it's the working people in the mental hospital, the guy mopping, the orderlies, who kind of like, thank you for your work, sir. You know, I'm a big fan of your work and all of this. And, you know, you'll you'll be getting out of here someday and things like that. So there's this still this feeling that even though for him, maybe he's got to move on from it or it, it never was what it was supposed to be. There's still this value, which, like I was talking about earlier with this whole thing, you know, with the John, I, like I said, I think it's John the Baptist and Last Temptation of Christ, where it's like they don't need you anymore. You know, they have. They have the system you've you've developed, and and that matters for them. You as a person are kind of irrelevant. So for me, that ending in the book, much like the ending of Clockwork Orange, which we'll talk about, adds this extra layer that would not be as impactful. Like the ending of the film as the film is different, but different in a good way. Even though the ending is different in the book, I don't. I I feel you can have both. Like I'm. Obviously, one of our great local authors who's passed away, Elmore Leonard, used to say the book's the book and the film's the film. When it came to the adaptation, it doesn't destroy my book because someone does an adaptation. So, Well, what you're saying as far as him being considered a hero kind of reminds me of that interesting twist at the end of Taxi Driver. He's not a vigilante. You know, he's not an assassin. He's a hero. You know, he saved Iris. Oh, this is fantastic. Thank you so much, Mr. Bickle. Which is ironic because of the way that uh, he names himself. Jack names himself as Travis and Rupert, you know, I guess kind of speaking again to Joker because of uh, the, let's say, cribbing of those two films into what ended up being Joker. I also seem to remember that the end of Fight Club, it's not just Marla who shows up. It's a lot of the people from the different groups show up, which is interesting, too, because that will be very similar, I want to say, to the ending of Choke, at least the book. I've only seen the movie of Choke once, and as I was watching the movie, I was just like, okay, this reminds me of Fight Club 
too much. I can't really enjoy this. I remembered liking the book of choke a little bit more, but I remember liking survivor probably the best out of those early Polonic books, but choke had that very similar. You have pulled. It's almost like the opposite though. It's, it's not necessarily an angry mob at the end of Fight Club, but it's very much an angry mob at the end of Choke because he has pulled the wool over all of these people's eyes by constantly pretending to be choking or he is choking and then gets saved and then offers that redemption to the people that save him. You know, and they always feel so much better about themselves by saving this man. And then they end up giving him money for whatever reason. And he, he, again, that protagonist is, very much addicted to going to groups. He's a sex addict and he is constantly going to his sex addict group and then fucking his fellow people in the, in the sex addict group. Yeah. I found that interesting that there is that echo in the end of the book of fight club to what he's going to do inside a choke. The other big change is, well, I mean, it's not big, it's a line, but I think the line changes the thematic concept a little bit. And this is the, uh, the Marla post-sex line. In the book, it's, I want to have your abortion to Tyler. In the film is, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school. Now, the I haven't been fucked like that since grade school plays into this whole masculinity thing. That it's like, I'm the man now, I can do this, I can bring her to this place, yay me. The other version, the book version, is more about sharing in the nihilism. It's like, I want to create something so I can just destroy it. And of course, him being in that nihilistic state, that would be great. Like, that's you're, you're on the path with me to have that kind of attitude. But I don't think, as much as that line would have shocked people... To say that line, it, to, to me, thematically, it doesn't fit as well into the film as it does into the book. There are a few lines in the film that just kind of irk me a little bit. That isn't necessarily one of them. The whole the line about he must have had his grande latte enema today. For whatever reason, that one always strikes me as like, that doesn't ring true to me. And I'm not sure where that one fits. I know for sure it wasn't in Polonic. I'm not sure if that was Ools or Andrew Kevin Walker, because I know Andrew Kevin Walker came back and did a polish of it before it went out, which was kind of typical for Fincher for a lot of his career is that he and uh, Andrew Kevin Walker have worked a lot together over the years. But yeah, there are just a few lines like that where I'm just like, yeah, that doesn't seem right. Or it could have been, I don't think that would have been a ad lib, but I know that there were a few ad libs in the film, like the run forest run line. And I did find it interesting because Fincher talks about the, I want to get pregnant. I want to have your abortion line that the, I can't remember the name of the woman from 20th century Fox, but she was just like, you have to change that line. So he's like, okay. And they redid the line. They went back for a reshoot. He said that they shot the reshoots at a, in a rectory at a church. They were shooting a bunch of stuff in this church. And he was just like, yeah, we can't, we can't reshoot this with the abortion line. That would just be sacrilegious to do that. So they come up with the grade school line. That gets into the next preview screening, and the person from 20th Century Fox is like, you know what? Go back to the abortion line. And he's like, nope, sorry, it's too late now. And that's how we ended up with that. I don't know if how apocryphal that story is, but yeah. 
I just don't think that the abortion line works well for the film. Thematically, it works the other way where it's like, this is about masculinity. It's not, it, it doesn't seem like coming out of that scene to go completely nihilistic like it does in the book. I don't know. It just wouldn't sit. I have to say, I haven't been fucked like that since grade school, to my way of thinking, is way worse. Way worse. Yeah. I mean, they're both bad. They're terrible. It's like yeah. one is, I don't know. Because you wonder who's fucking Marla like that in grade school. And is that why she is the way that she is now? So do you want to talk uh, sequels and then even a prequel? Yeah. Yeah. Let's talk about the, do you want to do prequel first? And then we talk about the sequels. I'll tell you how I found out about the prequel. I was in LA early uh, 2016 doing um, Orbit book event at Book Soup. And I'm up at the counter after I've done the book event. And there's this record and it says Chuck Palahniuk expedition and it's got a drawing of it, it looks kind of like american gothic it's obviously a fight club reference because the guy's got a shirt and he's got like i think cotton up his nose and a hello my name is badge it's him and this woman and i'm like what the hell is this and they're like oh it's a prequel to fight club and it's only on record it's only on this vinyl and i was like oh okay well get that this is an a real, when you talk about prequel, it's like real prequel. It's like 1800s. Based on the story, it is, I, I think this is probably the narrator's like great grandfather. And really, what it kind of shows is maybe a lifetime of psychosis or this kind of character that, that kind of keeps going through the generations or this recurring theme of men within the family in which he's a bank clerk. He's not very happy with his life. Um, he's got a 10 year old boy and to kind of make his evenings interesting, he's gone into basically kind of the skid row red light district of this town. Now it's not really said where the town is, but I believe that he probably based some of this on Portland where he's from. And the reason why I say that is, uh, when he really gets into it, he talks about these catacombs and these tunnels. Now, if you ever go to Portland, do yourself a favor and find what they call the Shanghai tunnels tour. And what it was, was back in the 1800s, because the streets were so muddy, they actually built these tunnels in Portland so that when ships came in, they could move the merchandise underground to the various places. Now, why they call them the Shanghai tunnels is because some of the bars that sat above these tunnels would have like fake floors and they would trap men, basically get them drunk, and then throw the trap, and they would fall. And then they would be put on ships, and then before they know it, they're working on a merchant ship going to Shanghai. So that's why I call them Shanghai Tunnels. Well, also in there, because of the West Coast, and they had all these you know, Chinese immigrant laborers and things like that, there was like opium dens underground. There was all of this. It's really fascinating history. So anyway, he goes out and he's been writing down in this journal, like all of these stories that he hears. And he knows that his father, when he was 10, 20 years earlier. So there's this thing about age 30, which I'll get to in a minute with something else where he keeps um, it seems like the men keep doing this. So, for example, his father disappeared when he was 10. His grandfather disappeared on his dad when he was 10. And there seems to be this kind of reoccurrence. And when you listen to the whole story, and I don't want to ruin the story in terms of how it ends, but there is a reference in there about Tyler, where he meets someone and he talks about Tyler to him. And that's where the connection is. 
So there's this character that seems to keep haunting the men of this family in some way. I was kind of reminded of our narrator's name is Jack. And I was reminded a little bit of the idea of Jack the Ripper continuing to haunt people. You know, there's an episode of uh, Star Trek where the spirit of Jack the Ripper enters into Scotty. There's the whole idea I was talking about with uh, cruising all those years ago as far as like, is it actually a spirit that's moving from person to person like Jack the Ripper? So I was reminded of that whole idea of like Tyler, yes, is a manifestation that haunts people throughout all of these things. And then suddenly it turns more into like a supernatural thing where I was just like, okay, I'm not a big fan. If you can get it, it's on YouTube if anyone's interested in listening to it. But for me, the first time I listened to it was my wife's fan of Fight Club. As a matter of fact, we used to go to Halloween parties. It was like the easiest way to dress up was just a, you know, suit and tie, little blood and a hello, my name is badge. And she would get tarted up a little bit and Marla badge and we're good to go. So it was easy. So she really loves the film and everything. So when I got this record and I brought it back from L.A., it was like turned all the lights off, lit a couple of candles, put the record on, flip it. You know, it's like 25 minutes aside because it's just spoken word with a little bit of like a music background behind it, which is really atmospheric. And we just really enjoyed it as like, you know, spend an hour in the dark, just, you know, listening to Chuck tell you the story. I like it. What did you think of the sequel comics? Now, the sequel comics, I did not get a chance to reread them. I've been way too busy uh, before this. But I remember that I liked the second one, the second series. So he did with Dark Horse two series of Fight Club sequels. There's Fight Club 2, which I believe was 10 or 12 issues. And then there was Fight Club 3, which was another 10 or 12 issues. So I bought the collected uh, versions and I have them on the behind me and on my bookshelf. From my memory, I liked Fight Club 2. I wasn't bowled over by it. I didn't think it was the best thing ever. But I liked that one better than I liked the second one. There's some meta elements that I like about it because I sometimes like when a creator is in their own work and then has to get beaten up or, you know, taken down by their own creation to a certain extent. So, but I liked kind of that turn at the end. It had this kind of surrealist element where, you know, these things would happen and that ending kind of where he appears and is kind of interacting with his creation. I like that. Even with the uh, the little YouTube video that I sent you earlier today, which you're like, oh, yeah, I got that already. The whole thing about Fight Club for Kids, it's a little YouTube joke that he did where he goes, hi, I'm Chuck Palahniuk. I basically just wrote Fight Club. When he dies, it'll be Chuck Palahniuk, comma, author of Fight Club, comma, died, aged, whatever. So him kind of talking back to his creation or engaging with it in that way, I thought that was fun. I didn't like that. I didn't like that one. I can't say I like three either. Fight Club 2 and Fight Club 3 are very, very different. The Chloe character goes on way too long, and it gets more and more exaggerated and weird. Well, yeah, and it's weird that he brought back Chloe, who was dead, and then Robert Paulson, I think, shows up as well, and it's like, this is just strange. And yeah, I didn't really care for the meta elements of that um, going on. And then the third one... I don't, I, I just didn't get that one either. Like, I, I, it didn't connect with me. This whole idea of like Marla's pregnant with her second child, I guess, in that one. And it actually isn't Jack is not the father. It's actually Tyler Durden. Oh, Tyler's back. And it's like, Oh God, this whole idea of like, we have to bring Tyler back. He has to still be part of the story because he is 
super interesting. And it's like, yeah, just, just don't do it. Leave it alone. I mean, I like the end of the film where you have that shot of the cock and it's like, okay, Tyler isn't 100% gone. He's still like the ghost in the machine. It's him splicing that into David Fincher's movie is the way that I take it. So yeah, Tyler just gives you a little like nod and a wink at the end kind of thing. I don't need any more than that. I'm, I'm good. Like, I'm sure that there are a lot of people that really wanted more Tyler Durden, but I'm like, yeah, I'm good. I'm good with the movie. I'm good with the book. I don't really need to carry on with this. I want to talk about single frame. Oh yeah. Single frame is definitely a lot shorter. And also, I'm sorry, but the sound does not sync up with the frame. The issue is, back in the good old days, when you actually had film run through projector, 24 frames a second. So the the actual, the little blips that you see of Tyler in the film are about four frames. So in order to actually, for it to register even that much, it had to be four frames. So the idea that it's like, oh, we're just going to put one frame in. I know I'm being a spoil sport. I'm trying to impose an actual reality on this thing. How but dare you, sir? Working in a theater, working with a projector, like I have a lot of love for rushing celluloid. So I'm, I was just like, it just didn't work that way. That's too fast. Nobody would see it. But this does move me into the question of other films. What does this connect us to? The one that I was, I, I listened to some of the stuff, like Ed Norton said, well, it's like the graduate. It's about a guy. He doesn't know what he's doing. He's all kind of shiftless. And he's got to figure it out. So, so there's the graduate. The other one, like Maitland was talking about, that I see, although that one is more about getting deeper and deeper and deeper into the artifice of, you know, I'm a professional, is American Psycho. I see the two is about vacuous, you know, vacuous striving. The other film that we've done on the projection booth that I was told to watch by the guys that I worked with at Thomas Video when I said I loved Fight Club, is they go, well, you need to see John Frankenheimer's Seconds. So just to remind people who haven't seen John Frankenheimer's Seconds, you need to go see it. Criterion's got a lovely edition of it, and then you can listen to our episode. Is about a guy who's a insurance salesman on Long Island, kind of bored by his life. His buddy calls him up, and he thinks he's dead. And he's like, no, I'm not dead. I've been reborn. Well, how have you been reborn? Well, there's this organization. They'll call you and and they'll do complete reconstructive surgery and they'll create an entire new life for you and your old life will be over. So he becomes Rock Hudson and then finds out he doesn't necessarily like being Rock Hudson, but it's really good. Paranoid thriller, 1966, allegedly piece of trivia. We did talk about this on that episode that it, that Brian Wilson saw this in the theater when it came out and it freaked him out so bad. He didn't see another movie for like 15 years. Well, the character's name is Wilson as well, which didn't help. So he thought that the movie was talking to him. The one that comes the closest to fight club is Tokyo fist. Have you seen Tokyo? I have fist? not. Is that uh Shinya Tsukamoto? Yeah. The guy who did Tetsuo, the okay. Iron Man. No, yeah. I haven't seen that one. Nor have I. It's about a, a guy who's a, a businessman and he's got this little rinky dick apartment in Japan and, and he can't stand his boss. And it's basically him and his boss kind of fight each other. And it gets into a lot of these things about corporate striving and masculinity. And there's a, his girlfriend's involved and things like that. It's been a while since I've seen it, but Tokyo fist, I would, I would put on there and say this, it's almost like a Japanese version in some ways. It's got some thematic elements. And then the other one that I was thinking about, uh, recently, which I really love, 
And I know some people have been kind of of two minds. And I remember walking out of the theater and going kind of, eh. And then I thought about it and I go, wow, that was actually more brilliant than I thought. It was Midsummer. So the aspect of cults, the aspect of the atomization of the individual, of, you know, family splintering, you know, and somebody trying to find something, trying to find something they can connect to that's real. So much so that at one point she starts speaking fluent, what is it, uh, Swedish or something? <laughs> you know. So it's, I really like that film I, because to me, there's a lot of kind of cultural stuff, much like Fight Club, about this sort of disconnect you know, with families and this disconnect from, from yourself and sort of like, well, what am I doing here? And why am I here? And what am I trying to accomplish? Well, that trauma, cause doesn't it start with their whole family killing themselves? Yeah. Yeah. There's trauma elements on top of it as well. I just think seeing Chris Pratt, uh, look alike being sewn into a bear suit was pretty interesting. That was horrifying. I have to say, tell me he doesn't look like Chris Pratt though. Come on. No, he does. Especially in the bear suit. You know, the first time I saw Fight Club, all I could think was, I have, I have never seen a film quite like this. I still feel that way about it, even though, yeah, we can connect parts of it to all kinds of other films and to books. And I'm sure to comic books as well, although that's not an area I know as well, or graphic novels, probably the, the better term there. And, I, and when I was rewatching it, I, I had that same feeling that this really, Fight Club really does stand alone even though we've just talked about other things other films books other media that we can connect to it it really does stand on its own for me in a really visceral way and i guess visceral is the term you have to use it is a gut punch of a movie and it's a gut punch in its own particular way it's funny the one thing that i've seen other films do similarly to fight club it's that trope of the reveal. And I think that the reveal is handled so well in Fight Club. The use of the flashbacks and just the tiny, tiny little flashbacks, just a few, you know, seconds of here's this moment in the movie. Here's this moment in the movie. And they're kind of out of order if memory serves. They're very brief and they just really take you through and they don't hold you by the hand. And I like that Tyler makes Jack say that they're the same person. And then we get those real quick flashes and we get those moments that we thought were Tyler. And now suddenly we're seeing them recontextualize with Jack. I've seen that done in other movies since then, that kind of reveal of like the thing that you thought you knew, like, Oh, the, the killer was actually these two guys. It wasn't the one guy. I know that's scream and that's a few years earlier, but like, other reveals that you get where you suddenly get like little flashbacks. And I'm like, yeah, they did it better in fight club. I think fight club is so well put together. And one of the things I really like, like having rewatched it so many times for this podcast, listen to the commentaries and things is hearing and seeing the little things that you never noticed before, like that it takes a little bit before you pick up on, like when Jack confronts Marla at the one group that she lets that coffee overflow that you can actually, if you watch it close, like she just leaves the coffee running when he pulls her away. And so you see the cup start to overflow or there's a guy who's coming up to speak to her right around that same time, right when Jack is approaching her, 
he sees them and then turns on his heel and walks away. It's like all the background characters have their own stories going on at the same time, which is very nice. And just rewatching and watching this film so many times, talking about like, you know, I talked about echoes earlier, the echoes of dialogue that you get, even things like, like the, the power animal, the penguin saying slide, Marla saying slide. And then later on, He's talking about Tyler, and it's like, Tyler really let things slide. And it's just like those repeated words that you're getting and just those repeated phrases. Like the guy who's leading the remaining men together when he's like, I look around this room and I see what does Tyler say when he gives one of his first big speeches. I look around this room, you know, and it's like, that's really nice that they have that repetition and that echo. And that, again, it's kind of a signal, like... Tyler is not just coming up with this. Tyler's pulling from Jack's subconscious. He's heard all these words before and he's just again recontextualizing it. It's, it's so nice. I'm kind of getting off tangent with the whole idea of, um, what Fight Club does better. But I mean, it's just such a well put together film that there's very few things, you know, we were talking about lines that we didn't necessarily like earlier, but that's, it's, kind of hard to to point those things out because there are not very many things that I dislike about this film. One of the things that I like most about Fight Club is that when you reach its conclusion, it almost feels as though the emulsion should just melt, that it's, it is so completely, utterly done. You want to see the light from the projector burning through the film and everything simply dissolving. It's apocalyptic in a very controlled way. And I find that really disturbing is not the right word because disturbing is kind of a weasel word. It can mean a lot of things. And yet I don't want to say shattering because it's more a melting and the feeling that it would stick to you and burn as it melted that you get at the end of Fight Club. I find that just chilling. I really love that this film is film. Yes, they did a lot of uh, effects digitally, but it's kind of a celebration. It's kind of the last hurrah of film itself. You know, you talked about, you know, having like that kind of Monty Hellman type ending where you burn the movie in the projector. You know, Rob, you were talking about the whole idea of the single frames kind of thing. There's those things. There's the idea of when uh, Tyler, then Jack are speaking to us. And breaking that fourth wall is in that one very particular scene where the camera is shaking and you can actually see the, uh, the, the threads, you know, of the, the film itself. It's just like, wow, this is great. And this is something that, you know, yeah, you can still do that. And it's a cheat now because it's, you know, if it's shot on digital, you're not going to, there is no film, you know, and this is really that kind of like last hurrah of like, Hey, this is a movie. This is a movie experience. You know, like this was shot and shown at a time where we still had platter systems where you would still get actual projectionists freaking out when that moment happened in the movie. You would get the, the filmmakers having a fear that when the, f- <laughs> when they're doing the example of the cigarette burns in the upper right hand corner, that that is going to cause a projectionist to have a heart attack and think, oh my God, I missed this changeover. You know, I, I love that, that they're, you know, still concerned about film and that this is that celebration. In some ways, it shows just how savvy people are. 
in that period. In an earlier era, if somebody were to do something like that, they'd be like, well, it's going to throw people out of the picture because they're going to be they're, they're going to realize they're watching a film instead of buying into this disbelief. In some ways, I mean, and granted, he was much more ahead of the game on that. I mean, that's like the Godard thing where it's like, I want you to realize you're watching a movie. I'm going to mess with you. I'm going to put titles in and jump cuts and all kinds of fun stuff. One movie that Fight Club does not remind me of is another movie called Fight Club Members Only. You could simply say it's the Bollywood Fight Club, but it is so not Fight Club. Like, they do have a Fight Club in it, and there's a scene where they're giving rules. That's about it. Welcome to Fight Club. Rule number five. Valid reasons. Rule number four. No weapons. Rule number three is the left hand rule. Rule number two. Once and for all, I. Harek fight ki proper vajao niche. Is fight me kisi bhi taraga hatiyar. Use nahi kiya jayega. Agar kisi bhi fighter ne apna left hand upar kiya, iska matlab fight over. Koi bhi do log, aapas me, sirf ek hi baar lag sakte hain. Okay, boys and girls, rule number one. And the most important rule. क्या तुम सबको पता है कि फाइट क्लब क्या है Fight Club members only. There's a video and I'll post it on the website when this goes live where a guy breaks down the movie. Um, he's done it several times. He, I, I watched the video that he did on the, um, basically the, uh, Bollywood, uh, Silence of the Lambs. So, uh, enjoy that one as well. But yeah, it's, it's not a good movie. And then I found it interesting too that, of course, you know, we're talking about how Fight Club lived on so much that the whole idea of like the parroting of the, you know, the first rule of Fight Club, like that just became shorthand for so much that there are other movies that have Fight Club in the title. There's Female Fight Club with Dolph Lundgren in it. And there's Zombie Fight Club, which I can't remember if it's. Japanese or Chinese is definitely an Asian film. And both of those films, even though they're called Fight Club or have Fight Club in the title, it's much more of a gladiatorial type of thing. And these fight clubs, and I remember there was one with Zoe Bell where she had to fight people, didn't have Fight Club in the title. But they're these gladiatorial uh, type movies where... They, they, you know, they, they get paired up. Like you have to fight a zombie or you have to fight this other woman. It's like, yeah, no, the thing I like about Fight Club, the movie and the book and just the idea is that these guys are doing it for themselves. You know, they're not doing it for sport for somebody else. There's not money being made off of this stuff. It's again, that anti corporate stuff. It's not for, you know, Jeff Goldblum to be watching and enjoying kind of thing. It's just these Two people are being surrounded by a bunch of other men and people are watching them fight and they are enjoying themselves and they're exploring themselves by being in these fist fights. There's none of that other stuff where these other movies that have Fight Club in the title are not Fight Clubs. Well, there is a purity to Fight Club. It's not about spectacle. It's all about something that's being concealed. 
you have to go to a, a special place at a particular time. If you can do that, you can be part of Fight Club. But it's not in any way about commercialization of this idea. And I think that that is one of the things that makes it as intense as it is, because no matter how much what you're looking at on the screen is a spectacle, because that's what movies are. They're a spectacle and you watch them. But there's no invitation to you to join into it in any way. You're always on the outside. You're always watching. And it is always completely about those characters. There's nobody that you're invited to identify with. There's nobody to pull you into the movie, even though you are completely pulled into the movie because it is so intense on every level. It is very much about something that you actually can't be part of, no matter how many times you watch it. Yeah, and there are those people that want to identify with Tyler, but it's like you're identifying with the imaginary friend. You know, the, the Tyler isn't real. So it's kind of a, a trick on the audience that wants to identify with that character so much. They have the rug pulled out from under them at the end. And that's one of the pieces of genius about it being who it is. He's, to use that awful term, very relatable. You can see people thinking, well, I want to be like that. Or I want to know that guy or I want, I want to be in this guy's world. And yet you can't be. You are shut out. You can only be a spectator. You can't be drawn into that world. It's a really alienating film because it does not invite you in on any level. And that's what's great about it is that it is so about. And by the way, you're not part of this. One of the things that I remember in the in the early reviews was all of this stuff about, oh, it's fascism. There, it, this is Nietzschean. And one of the things is Nietzsche's book, Das Sprach Zarathustra. So what is this? So it's a novel that opens with Zarathustra descending from the cave out of the mountains after 10 years. And he's got all these ideas. And the point is, is that basically humanity needs to evolve, that Man is just a bridge between the animal and the and the Ubermensch, the Superman, the Overman, the the one who is the exalted. So he goes out and he talks to the people and says, "Hey, I've got this knowledge," and then basically is rejected by the herd. So he goes, "Fine, I'm not going to throw my pearls before you. I'm just only going to speak to the people who want to separate themselves from the herd, those who are willing to turn their back on religion, on nationality, on." The, the, the rules, the, the conformity, the prejudices, the morality of human society, and we're going to come up with a, a new way of going about it. And that is like, in its essence, that's, that's what sort of Tyler represents in this way. Now, here's the thing that's funny. Now, you were talking about Life of Brian earlier. This gets me back to Monty Python. So when I was a little kid, and granted, it's not a Monty Python film, I consider it kind of Python adjacent. Fish Called Wanda, the Kevin Klein character, Otto, as he's torturing the Michael Palin stutterer Ken character, quizzes him on all of this Nietzschean questions about, you know, what book did Nietzsche claim that all higher art is based on cruelty, you know, beyond good and evil, all of this stuff. So, so when I was like, I don't know, 10 years old or something, when that film came out, that's what originally got me to start reading Nietzsche. So by the time I had gone to see Fight Club, I'm like, oh, okay, I get it. I get where all this is. But here's the thing. Anyone who thinks that Tyler Durden 
is prescriptive is basically auto. They're an idiot. <laughs> you know that they would base their entire life around it, you know, and go. This is the, the, this is the life that that you should have. So I, I just find that funny for me. So Otto's an idiot, and so are most of the people that are in Fight Club. Especially when you get that road trip that Jack takes, trying to find Tyler, and coming across all those people. I mean, the guy who works in the dry cleaning place. I'm not exposed to speak any such information to you, nor would I even if I had said information you want at this juncture be able. I'm afraid I'm going to have to ask you to leave. Or, you know, the guy with the halo on, around his head, and he's just like, you know, is this a trick? You know, <laughs> like, these are not very smart people. But they all think they're enlightened. And that's the thing that's hilarious about in Fish Called Wanda is I remember the line that Jamie Lee Curtis has. She goes, you know, uh, gorillas can read philosophy, Otto. They just don't understand it. So, <laughs> you know, it's just this you think, you know, but you really don't. The thing that I think about the end of Fight Club is I, I just look at it and think, you know, this is the place now where the film is just supposed to burn. It's supposed to melt out from the center and disappear. And what do you get instead? You get a dick shot. It is the perfect final fuck you. And by the way, you wanted to see the entire world of this film disappear. Nah, I'm going to give you a dick shot, which you will never see in the theater. You're going to have to be sitting at home and looking at it in order to see that. It's, it's just perfect. You had mentioned in the rundown penguins. Why penguins as the, as the power animal? Penguin symbolism. So let's look at penguins, right? So I, I looked up a couple of things and they go, oh, well, loyalty, devotion. But the thing with penguins is, is that the gender expectation is different. So basically the, the female lays the eggs and then the male penguin watches over it while the female goes out to hunt. So there are these changes of how the, the, the family structure is different. So you could say, okay, there's that. You know, I, I think that's part of it. I also think that when she becomes, when Marla becomes, when she's in the cave, which again, this is Nietzsche again, the cave, right? Zarathustra comes out of the cave. But anyway, she's, um, she's in the cave. To me, that represents the change where he goes, okay, she now becomes the reason. She becomes the focus for me. But I just can't accept that focus. And that's basically because for the first couple of times that I watched the movie, I'm like, why is she in there? And then I was like, ah, now I get it. You know, so it, it took a while for the computer to click into place and understand why she's in there. Well, he wants to fuck her in the worst way and just can't bring himself to admit it. You know, I love those moments where like even Tyler's like, well, you fucked her, right? And it's like, no, but you want to, but you just can't admit it. You know, he wants to hate her for ruining his good time, but really, you know, he needs to realize, like, she's that next step. If he's going to evolve, she's the next step in the evolution. It isn't all this other horse shit. You know, it's like she is going to be a good partner for him, even though she's fucked up, but he's equally, if not more fucked up. They really belong together. And normally I don't like that in movies where it's like, oh, we have to couple these two characters, but they're kind of the perfect couple. In an apocalyptic kind of way. That's what's great. And, you know, if all the credit bureaus and credit cards and all that stuff happen to 
go away tomorrow. They they get degauzed, like all those videos in uh, Blockbuster. I'd be okay with that. You know, it's so funny that, you know, we're still debating, quote unquote, about student debt. And it's like, if there's ever been a time to erase the debt record, that would be it. But, you know, I paid off my student loans, so all those people should have to pay those off, too, even though my student loans were just a fraction because college prices are so fucking outrageous. But, you know, it's all about me personally. So if you can't pay off that $100,000 of debt, then fuck you, because it's all about me and my needs. Talking about Marla really quick. It's not when she's first introduced. There's the scene where he's talking about she's like that scratch in the top of my mouth. And she lights her cigarette and she exhales in slow motion. She looks like a Giger painting to me. Like I just look at that image of the smoke just coming out of her mouth and it looks like something that Giger would have painted. It's just perfect, you know, and it's in slow-mo like that, which knowing Fincher that's a, that to me at the same time with being Giger feels like Scorsese because Scorsese used to slow things down, you know, like in, um, uh, in raging bull where it's like Kathy Moriarty, it's like, she's in slow-mo and means he wants her, you know, it's got that, you know, that animal attraction thing. So, so I just thought it was just so beautiful. I mean, now you got to put the the thing saying, Oh, they're smoking in the film, but just, just lights it. And then, you know, it's like, Oh, it's just a beautiful image. Well, it's not as bad as the Indian films going back to Bollywood Fight Club. I don't know if you've watched an Indian film recently, but there are actual on-screen warnings. Whenever anybody is smoking or lights up a cigarette, there's a whole thing that comes across the bottom of the screen. Like, wow. yeah, it's wild. It is really wild how pervasive these messages are in there. And I'm like... Half of me is like, okay, and others, I'm like, that's really awful. Like, I would hate, I hope they don't go back to older films and do that. Like, can you imagine watching, like, Casablanca or any, you know, any Bogart film? Can you imagine watching any film noir where they're going to throw a warning about smoking on the screen? things made now it's it's almost funny when i watch a movie that's made now or like how they had to have the warnings on the uh the beatles documentary there's smoking in this it's like okay thanks <laughs> i'm i'm really okay that these guys half of whom are dead smoked i'm really okay with that and they're not dead from smoking by the way all right we're going to take another break and play a preview for next week's show Remember those idyllic scenes out of your childhood? Crisp winter nights, sleigh bells, crackling yule logs? Remember those. Remember them well. After Black Christmas, they'll never be the same again. Black Christmas. That's right. We'll be back next week with a perfect movie for the holidays, Black Christmas. Until then, I want to thank this week's co-host, Robin Maitland. So, Maitland, what has been keeping you busy? Oh, this, that, and the other thing, I guess. Um... Have you been publishing any more uh, gay romance novels? I have not published any more gay, gay romance novels. I'm actually putting together a substack, and you don't need, you know, you don't want to include this, but I'm I'm putting together a substack newsletter uh, in which I discuss vintage gay adult novels from my bigger than anybody probably should have. Well, that's not true. I'm sure there are people with much bigger collections of that kind of thing than I have, but. They are all interesting books to talk about. 
frankly, uh, mostly because of the of their take on genre stories. And the, the genres I've, I've always collected in those novels really are, are thrillers and detective stories and mysteries. And it, it's fascinating, particularly because they were written in the 70s. So we're talking about an entirely different world of what it meant to be gay, how that shaped your life in a way that I think it doesn't as much now in much of America. You really have to put a lot of qualifiers on that because clearly there are plenty of places and circumstances in which actually it's not, it's not okay to be gay even now, but it's, it's very, very conspicuous in these vintage gay vintage being, of course they weren't vintage when they were written, but they are surely vintage now gay adult narratives. You really do see an entire different world of attitudes and yet you see them through these genre tales, these, the detective stories and, and the hard, the, the, uh, the thrillers especially are just fascinating from that perspective. And Rob, how about yourself? What is keeping you busy? Well, when I hear about this massive collection that uh, Maitland has, I go, that belongs in an archive. So I hope that uh, there's plans for it to go somewhere where it can be shared with uh, future generations, because that's the work I've been doing over the last uh, basically fall. I started a program uh, in archival administration certificate here in Detroit at Wayne State University. So I'm doing that. And uh, I was planning to go on a track to go into archives and actually handle the papers and do all that. But I think I'm going to lean more into um, the administration aspect, kind of leaning on my past work, uh, doing fundraising, public radio and uh, working for um, kind of a Kickstarter like uh, community with, with grants, kind of a Kickstarter with grants um, thing that I did for a few years. So I really enjoyed working with nonprofits and cities and communities in that way to help them raise funds, help tell stories and, and um, do sort of the uh, administration to do the good work. So I think that's when I'm going to end up doing uh, working on a um, master's program starting in the spring after I'm done with this certificate. But, um, but yeah, learning all about uh, archives and, and how they're kind of the uh, underappreciated stepchild of the library world, which the library world is underfunded. The archives are even more underfunded. So, but uh, it's important work. And if we don't save this stuff uh, for the future, then we're all in trouble. That's how I feel at least. And I've actually particularly been thinking about that in connection with gay adult novels of the seventies, because they really were the ultimate, not just disposable fiction, but the kind of fiction that you didn't want to leave behind you. You didn't want your family to find all of these books and, and suddenly see, oh, my God, there are 700 gay porn books here. Wow. That's something we never wanted to know. And that is what happened, I, I'm sure, to a lot of people's personal collections. They, they, their families moved in to clean out the, the house or the apartment found those books and could not get rid of them fast enough. So that is, that is why I have given some thought to where I want those books to go at some point, because there just aren't that many out there. People had huge collections of these books and they just went to the curb as fast as their families could put them there. Well, archives really were beneficial to me, especially even doing this show. So more power to you. 
Well, thank you so much, folks, for being on the show. Thanks to everybody for listening. If you want to advertise on the projection booth, email sales at advertisecast.com to inquire about rates. I want to thank especially our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projection booth. Every donation we get helps projection booth take over the world. Did you know that urine is sterile? You can drink it.